everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Such an entertaining episode this week with Nick Hardwick, former center for the San Diego Chargers. Memories were revisited, some hilarious, some shocking, and a few that pulled at the old heartstrings. We've got tales of delicious meals, tales of drinking one's own urine, and the sweatiest crotch in all of pro football. And if the sweaty crotch bit didn't sell you, there's also some very technical O-line talk. It's amazing what a decade in the NFL can do to your body, your brain, and your bank account. It's Friday. You're quarantined. You basically have nothing left to lose. Here it is, episode 355. Continue the joke about the urine and the mason jar. Yeah, Texas getting all worked up. It's real hot and bothered. Well, that, that gets you. Do you want to hear the story? I want to see who made more money out of it, you or I. Oh, God. All right. I ended up making 1400 bucks out of this. And so and what happened? So who made more money? You did. Go on. <laughs> Tex- oh, fantastic. Tex and I haven't seen $1,400 in real life in like our, our lives. Come on, John. Here we go. All right. So here's what, here's what happened. I was in an offensive line meeting room, center of the, the offensive line really didn't feel like it was appropriate to ever leave the meeting, but I was always very hydrated and I would sit in the back of the meeting room. And pissing so the Gatorade of, bottles. Yeah. Pissing the Gatorade bottles, right. It's like a hundred yards to walk to the bathroom and to come back. And I didn't want to ask for like, and you don't want to lose weight. I mean, I did, you know, didn't, didn't want to lose weight. I was holding on to every bit that I could. And I was just sitting back there. So I basically I would crane my neck around the door frame because I was the last chair before the door. So I'd crane my neck around the door frame. I'd hang my private parts out of the meeting and I would pee into a Gatorade bottle and then I would just screw the lid on, put it on top of my desk, wait till we went on an official break back to the bathroom, dump it down the sink or the drain or whatever, and then throw the bottle into the recycle bin. And I had a guy, Scott Merchkowski, who looked back and he goes, you won't drink that. And, and I was like, you're right. And he goes, for $100, you won't drink that. And I was like, absolutely not, I won't. And this was really during the time HBO was doing the 24-7, and they had, I think it was Juan Manuel Marquez. And every time he would train, he'd have like three ounces of this really dark, nasty pee left over, and he would drink it. And so they yeah. kind of discussed it on there. He's like, he didn't want to leave any vitamins or minerals behind. He ended up getting his ass kicked in the fight. Ugh. And he would drink this nasty post-training urine, but they said it was sanitary. And so I was like, I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I'm not doing it for a hundred dollars. And then some guy across the room is like, $200, $200 over here. We got 250. And then it ended up working its way up to 1400 bucks. Did you drink the whole bottle? I drank 20 ounces of it. Oh God. 20 ounces. And I, I got to tell you, it wasn't bad. Here's kind of the experience was we went to the training room, the whole offensive line was gathered around and I just like cracked it open and I had a really nasty gag reflex too, but this didn't bother me at all. I just said, I'm doing it. And I just kind of sipped it down and we had people falling out, going to trash cans, puking. They just couldn't hold it together. So they, they were the ones who ran out of there. Here's where I got it wrong was I just left it with the offensive line. Like I should have taken this to the entire team. Uh, I think I could have made ten. I could have really cleaned house. Yeah, easy. So here's fourteen hundred bucks. Seems like a good score, but it's seventy bucks an ounce. So it's a shot of piss for seventy bucks. Mm. Come on, you. That's probably better than the Malort's. That's a good night out. I don't know if that's a good or bad deal. Like I'm not sold either way, and it really depends (laughs) how many real shots I've had beforehand. 
Yeah, you yes, can do it. It really, <laughs> it really just it tasted like crushed up vitamins in mm-hmm. water. So well, if you're like, well, uh, we've ate kidneys in Argentina, and that tasted like piss. Yeah, yeah, no, they did taste like urine. If you had gave me oh, eat a kidney awful. or take a shot of piss, I would probably just take the shot of piss. Uh, the yeah, because at least the the pisses work through the filter. You're just eating the filter. Yeah, and like have to chew it. Yeah, like they didn't I'm off this. Chi- they like, didn't even uh, like like you're supposed to soak the kidneys in milk to like get the taste out. No, when we were in Argentina. They just threw that shit right on the grill and cooked it up, and we're like, oh, this is fucking awful. Oh, that's <laughs> nasty. Yeah, they cooked all the entrails. Like uh, the um, remember um, blood sausage. Was yeah, is oh. that bad? Uh, like we were drinking, I, I just kept drinking wine. I was like, let me just get another glass of red wine. Yeah, I keep pounding this thing down. Oh, yeah, that's, and put salt that's on That's all it. you can do. Yeah, wine oh, and yeah. salt fixes everything. Salted, hot sauce, like cover yep. up the taste. Yeah, exactly right. It's me when that I eat chicken. Work. I uh, put like a lot of hot sauce. People are like, oh, you must like hot sauce. I'm like, no, I just hate chicken. Mm-hmm. I do love hot sauce. Every, every meal I have, it's sriracha and like a spicy brown mustard. Well, you're going to avoid cancer. Um, we had Dr. Tom on the podcast. He talked about the two best things you can do to avoid cancer is uh, drink green tea and put hot sauce on everything. No kidding. I have green tea every morning. Yeah, look at you. You're going to live to be. Everything. You're going to live to be fucking 100 years old. It may be miserable, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> There's a. I, I just got forwarded a video on Instagram with uh, this like old lady, and they had like the birthday cake, and it's like she's 94, and they sing her happy birthday, and she like. I hope this is my last one. And then blows out the candles. <laughs> Come on. Come on. I swear to God, I'll forward oh. it to you. It's fucking great. I, uh, I, dude, I couldn't stop laughing. I and mean, like, just, just the look of like, I don't know any of these people. I hate my life. Just fucking kill me now. And she's um, like, enough already. Yeah, it, uh, it's not funny anymore. Everybody I know has been dead for twenty years. Oh God, that's that's, when, that's when people are like, oh, I want to live forever. I'm like, really? Oh, only if you yeah. got someone to party with. Yeah, like you know? if you get somebody to live eternity with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like oh Callie God. freezing her head. Mm-hmm. Mm, that'd be good. <laughs> so now what are we going to do? Well, Nick, why don't you give, uh, in case any of our listeners are unaware of who you are or your background, and uh, why don't you give them a little intro? A little brief bio here. All right. So yeah. Nick Hardwick, I was a former center for the San Diego Chargers, played 11 years for the team, all with one team. Grew up Indianapolis, Indiana. I was not a football player after my freshman year of high school. I was like five foot four, 125 pounds. I think the coaches for my own safety didn't let me on the field. And so I quickly realized like this isn't a sport for little guys. This is a sport for bigger men. And so I kind of shifted my focus to wrestling. And I had a really good, thankfully, amazing wrestling staff there, like a Hall of Fame Indiana High School Hall of Fame wrestling coach. Royce Deckard was his name really gravitated towards him. So wrestling became my only thing in high school. That's all I did was a wrestler. I was 135 pounds my freshman year, 145 my sophomore year on the varsity. I was 19 and 20. And then junior year, I bumped up to 171. I ended up being 48 and two qualifying for state. And then my senior year, same, I stayed at 171, but I cut 48 pounds to get down there because I just Mm kind of kept growing. I was 171. I finished second in the state. I was 48 and three. And then I was just kind of done wrestling. I had the option to go to Rutgers at the time and be a part of their wrestling team. I'd never been to New Jersey. So that wasn't a thing for me. I was like, I, I can go there or I could just go up the road and go to Purdue University with my best friend. And I ended up joining the ROTC program there. I was a midshipman in the Naval ROTC. I earned a scholarship my second year there. 
had great grades. They, they forced it. They imposed study hall on us. And I wanted to be a Marine Corps pilot. Well, when I finally took the physical after I got my scholarship, I found out I was colorblind and I wasn't going to be a pilot. So I was kind of crushed and it's like, okay, well, the next coolest thing, I guess, is to be a Marine Corps infantryman officer. So I was like, I'll do that. And then I had a buddy, this kid, this chubby kid from Chicago named Frank Avino, this Italian dude. He always kind of smelt like pork sausage a little bit. Mm, and Frank, Frankie, yeah, right? Yeah. And so Frankie <laughs> comes in and Frankie goes, he, he has the school newspaper at the time because we didn't have phones. And he goes, hey, dude, in the classified ads, there's a walk-on tryouts for the Purdue football team, which Drew Brees was there at the time. They were competing for the Big Ten championship. And I said, let's let's give it a try. Why not? So me, Frankie, and another buddy of mine, David Moore, ended up asking special permission from the ROTC program. We said, hey, can we start training to try to walk onto the football team? And sure enough, Purdue ended up winning the Big Ten that year, going out to the Rose Bowl for the first time since 1967. I was a fan in the stands. And then I came back and about a week or two later, we had our walk-on tryouts and there was 105 dudes there because everybody wanted to be a part of this thing. And I ended up being one of five that they chose. I was 229 pounds at the weigh-in and I don't know what they liked about me. I wore my Marine Corps ROTC like training gear. I had my shirt tucked in. I had a high and tight. Maybe they just thought, well, this kid, if nothing else, would be a, a good body to slam around. And I ended up making the team. I thought I was going to be with the linebackers because of my weight, but they quickly moved me to defensive tackle at 230. And they said, go gain some weight. So I asked one of my buddies who ended up becoming a UFC fighter, Matt Mitrione, said, how do we, how do we gain weight? He's like, well, I, I did it by eating two Jimmy John gargantuan subs every day. So I did that. And then on top of that, I would eat two pounds of ground beef every single day and throw it on top of a tortilla and some Ortega sauce and my roommates would throw a bunch of butter and a bunch of crap in there. And I ended up gaining in like four or five months, ended up gaining like 40, 45 pounds, getting up to 275. Of course, the bacteria from all the ground beef caused an ulcer, coupled with the anxiety that I was getting every time they yelled at us in 6 a.m. workouts. So I lost about 30 of that. And then I had to gain 50 of it back. And ended up I was a defensive tackle for a year and I thought coming into my fourth year at Purdue they were gonna let me get some playing time because I graded out really well in the spring and then they said hey we're gonna move you uh the second day of training camp my fourth year they said we're gonna move you to offensive guard and I was like no 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 no! you're not moving me I'm about to play like this is all I wanted I didn't play in high school I'm about to play on a big 10 team this is sweet and they're like no you're starting tomorrow morning at training camp at left guard I was like, I don't even know what to, I don't know what a run is. I don't know what a pass is. They said, hey, we got a senior center, a senior tackle. They'll tell you what to do on every play. And sure enough, they did. <laughs> and I, I won my first rep of pass protection going against a guy who was like 330 pounds. And I tell you immediately from my wrestling background, that felt like the most natural thing of all time. And everybody kind of went crazy because I won the rep. And I had a long way to go, but our the center of that team ended up tearing his ACL in our last home game of the year before the bowl game. They moved me over to center. I had two weeks to learn how to snap, to learn what the hell the calls meant because they were just force feeding me the information all through the year. So I learned that. And then when I moved to center, I realized I am, uh, I'm pretty good at this. I got a good chance and I played it for the bowl game. And then I played it my entire senior year, got drafted 
third pick of the third round of the 2004 draft after having like 15 or 16 college games under my belt and turned into an 11 year NFL career and retired. And at the end of 2014, too many stingers, my hands started like lobster clawing, shutting down. I couldn't button my shirts, couldn't screw the lid on a water bottle, was dropping all of my pins. I could snap and I could block a dude, but I couldn't do much else. So after week one, Monday night football in 2014, big Calais Campbell for the Arizona Cardinals at the time ended up giving me a massive stinger and the doctor said no moss and I was super thankful and then kind of went on a weight loss journey and here we are five years later 230 pounds and life's good man McQuilkin a story as old as time isn't it just a couple of guys having a 10-year NFL career and offensive <laughs> line you know it's fucking it's a, it's a fucking great story I, I, I think I this can is totally a, relate you this know is like, a, this is a made for TV <laughs> fucking deal I was like man this is great I, I would totally go see this movie so it's a life it's a lifetime movie I think no nah, dude this is more like uh like an HBO feel good type of deal Nick, you know, I, used to, I, I used to say this like when I was a walk-on because I was a defensive tackle for a year and they kicked my ass. These seniors that we had, they were really rat, big, rowdy offensive line. They were really good and they would beat my ass and I would just keep coming and keep coming. And I really loved the movie Rudy growing up, but then I kind of started to despise it because people would look at me as a walk-on defensive lineman and be like, all right, Rudy, chill out. And so eventually it became, it became, you know what the difference between me and Rudy is? Rudy fucking sucked. <laughs> so I started taking offense and then I just watched it a couple of months ago with my boys. That's an awesome movie. Yeah. yeah. No, Man, I haven't seen that movie in a while. Yeah, oh no, my it's... God. Go back and watch that. That is incredible. Yeah. No, it's... How, how long did it take you to crack the starting lineup at the NFL? Uh, so when they drafted me, our center at the time was an undrafted guy two years in and he was holding out, but he held out like this was so stupid. He held out before the draft and they drafted me in the third round. And then basically like day one of training camp, I was the the starting center and they kept telling me, Hey, if Jason comes back, you have to be ready to play guard and play center. And so we're going to get you some reps in there. He never came back. He didn't come back until I guess it was probably week four or week five. And he had some, he had some pretty deep issues. He had some drug addiction issues that ended up kind of working. He worked off the team. Our coaches really warned us not to be around him at the time. And so I got injured for two weeks. He happened to be there during those two weeks. So he could at least get credit for the season that I guess go test free agency or whatever. But those issues really reared their head during that like month that he was there. And so he played when I was out for two weeks, I had a meniscectomy and then I came back and that was it. And so I was, I was the starter the entire time I was there. Cool. You walked into Drew Brees there, right? So it went from the the guy that started your career more or less into he's your guy. He's got your hands. Super rad. Yeah. So Drew was really my inspiration to play at Purdue. I mean, in at Purdue university, we're in the middle of Brees mania. So they were winning all these huge games, beating Ohio State, going to beat Michigan State. I mean, it was incredible there. People were going absolutely bananas, like something they had never seen in West Lafayette. And really, as a high school dude, I didn't even know big-time college football existed like this. So there's 75,000 people going bonkers, lighting couches on fire after the game. I mean, trying to tear down the goalpost. It was absolute madness, but it was awesome. So he really inspired me because basically I was – sitting in the stands with everybody else 
And I wanted to be one of the guys that was in the uniform, had a better seat and could really like at least act like people were cheering for me and I wasn't cheering for other guys. And that, so the inspiration was there. And then day one of like our off, off season workouts, Drew, I was sitting there having lunch as our indoor cafeteria at the time. And then coming up beside me, this guy's voice, he goes, Hey boiler. And I look up and I was like, Holy shit. It's Drew fucking breeze. I was like, my, he was my hero, right? Like everybody else at Purdue at the time. He's it's like Drew breeze. And of course I'm all buttoned up and I'm like, Oh, Hey Drew, Nick Hardwick. Nice to meet you. And then he's like, you mind if I sit down and have lunch with you? I was like, oh, no, yeah, please enjoy it. Inside, I'm like, oh, my freaking God, it's Drew Brees, right? Like, I was I was totally flipping You're out like, about he's it. so and little. Just, <laughs> he's so much littler than I thought you'd be. I thought you'd be six foot seven with, a, you know, hands like a giant, but you're five, exactly. eight. Exactly. It's like, how are we ever going to get this snap with your small hands? This isn't going to work out for us. You're like, my ass is huge and you're tiny. Fuck. <laughs> huge and sweaty. We ended up actually having that problem because he had small you, hands. You were extremely sweaty. I remember seeing you on film many times and uh, oh. always commenting like on the glisten of like your like not only your whole body where it's like, God, that center looks real sweaty. It's a lot of Jimmy John's though, man. I do. It, it just <laughs> like like your pants are always soaked. And like oh, I, think, nasty. I remember when we played out, we to play you guys at the Chargers because I mean uh, you know the same or the division uh, when I was in KC and like you know because yeah. you end up watching guys all the time and um, totally. just, yeah. so it's, it's kind of weird like you end up learning more about other offense alignment by watching all of this game film mm-hmm. and you're like oh those guys are pretty good so if there's somebody who's pretty good you tend to watch them all the time because I'm like oh fuck if that guy's good I'm gonna figure out what he did so yeah that was so the, the thing about the sweat we drew, drew and I had like some issues snapping the ball because I snapped it really hard and had fast hands and he had small hands, but I wanted to wear gloves. And our offensive coordinator used to say, your glove is stealing the ball from Drew. So we had all these moments where like they would have a camera basically up my ass trying to film the quarterback center exchange. And then it came to he's too sweaty because every time Drew would put his hand up underneath my bum, it was like a sponge ringing out on his hand. So I would go in at halftime and I'd have another pair of pants and I'd have another pair of tights. So I'd have to strip everything down over the top of my shoes, keep my cleats on and everything, and then pull up some tights and pull up my pants and go out fresh for the second half. It was, and there was, I don't know where that sweat was coming from, but it was extreme crack sweat. Now, uh, now that you're 230 pounds, you obviously don't sweat the same way. I, not at all. I, it's hard to sweat now. Yeah. And so, I, have to, I have to really be getting after it. Well, I guess you know where the sweat went. You know, the yeah. difference between <laughs> 230 and 300 pounds will do that to you. You know what else probably didn't help was all the pregame energy drinks. <laughs> when, when you come into a game and your baseline heart rate's sitting at like 140, 150, you're mm-hmm. just like sweating, walking out to the field, and then you start working, and it's like it can only elevate so much. Well, you also did play in like the world's like nicest, most temperate place, fucking San Diego. I remember like uh, when the weather was shitty and we got a chance to go to San Diego. We're like just walking around outside the hotel. (laughs) Like I just remember people just like enjoying this fucking walk around. Just walking around. uh, uh, Seriously, we we would stay up. um, God, uh, what was it like the Omni up in um, uh, fuck. Um, oh, yeah, up in La Jolla. Yeah, up in La Jolla. Yeah. And uh, we'd just go outside and just walk around the building. Would that be like cold weather months? The, uh, oh, yeah. Like, 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 like I remember. Winters we, yeah, because for some reason, we'd always winters? play um, San Diego. Like, it was either like a early and then like a late, and oh. it kind of alternated. Yeah. But I just remember right. we'd like go to San Diego and just 
go walk around. Mm-hmm. Be like, hey, you want to do some laps? Yeah, let's just walk around. Nice weather. Get we could never. When you were there, we could never beat KC in December. There was like a, a string of, I forget yeah. how many years it was, and Marty Schottenheimer used to bring it to our attention all the time. He's like, we haven't won in Kansas City in December. And it was like, it felt like 20 years every time he said it. And we would go out Saturday, and then we'd always have that noon central time start. And then yeah. he started taking us out on Friday. I don't think that really had anything to do with it. I just think... You guys were cranking at the time, especially on the offensive line, and then the field was like a slot fest. And, oh yeah, <laughs> and and we just we kept trying to run outside, and you just kept running straight down the middle. Yeah, yeah. You you had the plan. We did not have the plan. No, we had a yeah, we had a pretty good offensive line. I remember when I got traded from Kate or from Philly and came in, I was like, man, this is kind of a high fucking watermark. These guys are. I mean, I thought it was pretty good, and like these guys were pretty fucking good. I mean, they you know, they, and three of them are, you know, or two of them are in the Hall of Fame. One of them's on the ballot, and you know, Casey Wigman should probably be there. But yeah, Casey yeah. was always a guy that I thought was just super underrated. Yeah, well, he he, uh, like he's like a fucking energizer bunny. Like he would like sprint downfield, sprint backs, but just like fucking running everywhere, and uh, was feisty and little. Like he was probably two sixty five, two seventy. You know, six wow. two. He was tiny. And I remember he was like, tiny, but his technique was exceptional. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah him, he, him he and Tom Nalen too. Yep. I love watching Tom Nalen. Funny story about San Diego with Tom Nalen. He comes out before the game and I go up and introduce myself. Hey, Tom, Nick Hardwick, love watching your game tape. He was much older than me and it was like a perfect San Diego day. We're at Qualcomm Stadium and he's out there walking around. He's kind of looking around. He's got that giant beard and he was just scruffy as hell. <laughs> and, he, and he goes nice to meet you. And then he kind of looks around like this and he's like, my hope it rains. It's like, <laughs> what? what? Just I was like, Tom, I don't think you got a chance of rain here, pal. I'm sorry. <laughs> hate to ruin your day. Uh, dude, I, I remember uh, uh, when I got to meet like Schlereth and those guys, you know, when I was a young dude and uh, yeah. they, they were fucking old and grizzly and Schlereth had had like 37 surgeries. And I got to go out and like hang out and like meet those dudes and go out and party with them. And uh, they were just so salty. Like, oh. like it just, and I remember thinking, like, am I going to be this salty when I'm old? I'm like, God damn, I hope not. Yeah, you know? why are these guys so pissed <laughs> off all the time? Uh, well, he, it's. Uh, I came to the conclusion that the reason that guys were salty would usually had to do with something with a divorce and child support. Because oh. every dude I was around, I'd always be like, uh, "You married, divorced?" And every one of them's like, "I'm fucking divorced. I'm playing these games for this fucking child support and alimony." And like oh, that God. level of bitterness. And I remember to the point in our scouting report, we requested, we're like, "Hey." uh, <laughs> Can you list if anybody's recently divorced? Marital status? Yeah, seriously. And then and then what's their wife's name and this? And so we started getting that, like asking for all that information, the scouting report, because we found if dudes were like, you know, recently divorced or going through something or a custody battle on this, they were fucking hell on wheels on Sunday. And we were like, oh, fuck, man. Like, dude, I heard you guys going through a nasty custody divorce. This is going to be fucking rough for them. <laughs> oh, that's, that is brutal. Well, oh. Dude, I, I, um, do you remember... Um, uh, Keith Hamilton played for the Giants. He was like, yes. he, he, he's, he was an older guy when I mean, fuck, yeah. dude, he's probably older too. But uh, he had uh, pictures of his kids tattooed like their baby faces all over his arms. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember asking him, I was like, what's up? Are those are your kids? Like, kind of like, what's the deal? And he's like, I, uh, it fucking pisses me off when I look at them because um, I'm divorced and I got to pay alimony and that's my fucking. That's oh, my that's my that's pregame. His motiv- that's that was his, his pregame motivation to be fucking angry. Oh my <laughs> goodness gracious! Yeah. So every time he puts his hand in the dirt, he's like, yeah, he's like seeing all. <laughs> I was like, oh, 
Fuck. This is good uh, luck, dude. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck with the rest of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the ends here, uh, dude, people are serious, man. I, I mean, I, I always thought like, hey, dude, we're getting paid a lot of money to play a game in white spandex in front of a bunch of drunks. Like, let's keep this shit in perspective. In that, yeah, exactly. We can have fun. We can be really combative. It took me a long time to get there, though. It took me till going out to the Pro Bowl after my third year to realize that everybody had a family and everybody was treating this as a career except me. And I was the one out there like trying to hurt everybody as a young kid and like trying to start fights. And it was like, when I finally went out there and saw how professional everybody was was like, Oh, I'm doing this wrong. I get it. I, I understand. I, I wanted to like stand up and give a big apology. It's like, sorry for being such an asshole to everybody, but, I didn't know any better. And, and honestly, I was just super scared every game. So yeah, I no. lash out. I was like the little chihuahua out there. Well, I mean, you almost have to do it. Fuck. You're like, uh, I, I used to joke too, that like at any moment, somebody's going to like pull the wig off and be like, old man Sanders. I knew it was you. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for you rascally kids. I would have gotten away with another game. You know, we'd always be like, uh, this feels like a Scooby-Doo ending. Am I going to pull off fucking mm-hmm. pull off your mask? But yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Right. You kind yeah. of, you you get so worried that they're going to expose you like somehow they're going to expose your weaknesses or expose yeah. you for being hey this dude's not really tough yeah. I, and there was one game where i ended up ha- I, I have green tattoos so the viewers can check out the green tattoos i got full sleeves on my arms and i really do think it's like i have these a little bit because i didn't play football and then it's kind of prison mentality a touch it's like i just wanted somebody to beat my ass to make me not look so like a like a suburban white kid from Indianapolis like that was part of the deal so it's like have these tattoos and then everybody will just kind of leave you alone well it turns out they did up until there was one game in Denver where I forget which linebacker it was something happened and he's like oh man you you think you're so tough with those green tattoos he's like man we know you and I was like bullshit I was like bullshit you don't know I was like you don't know shit I'm from the port dog and I was like what? I don't even know where that came from. He's like, <laughs> like he's like, like the they port. fucking know. They like, fucking know. I was like, oh god, they know. And I was like, I'm from the port. And he's like, Shreveport. And I was like, yeah, Shreveport, dude. <laughs> and he's like, oh shit. And he looks at all of his boys like, dude, he's from Shreveport. It's like <laughs> I, I didn't even know like Shreveport's apparently a really bad area. I have no yeah, idea Shreveport, where like Shreveport, Louisiana. Shreveport I don't know where it came into my head, but I was like, I'm from the port, dude. And then it was like, whoa, back up. This guy's, this guy's, <laughs> crazy. This guy's fucking like, crazy. Oh, <laughs> old man gets to play again. Here we go. Yeah, you're like, hold on, let me put my mask back on. No, I, I, <laughs> I Yeah, I like, you know, and then you like, you get done with the game and all of a sudden you're like, oh, God, I fooled him another week. And I remember that I used to always call my brother and uh, I'd be like, man, the guy was having a bad game. I mean, I fooled him another week and my brother would be like, you've been fooling dudes for eight nine years you know like every every sunday you're fooling somebody and there's a lot of pro bowlers you fooled and i was like well you know what maybe i just caught them on an off day i just wanted to catch everybody on their (laughs) off day maybe it's not so much fooling maybe you just (laughs) ended up being good and i it really took me to like year probably eight or nine to settle in and to realize like i'm going to be able to block anybody i'm not I'm not going to blow this on, in national television. Like everything's going to be fine. Calm down, go out, do your job. And then it just started to become easy. And I had much less anxiety about it. It was like, I, I felt like coming in and not having been a high school football player. It was like, I had this idea of what it was supposed to be. And then finally nine years in hundred plus starts. in, I was like, Oh, you can just relax. Like 
you're going to be fine. You're just going to block the guy, and then the day's going to be Man, over. Man, I, I wish you got to play tackle, not the fucking center crutch position, the one that we <laughs> called the, we, we used to call the center the crutch boy. Uh, Did Hank you? Fraley, oh, yeah. Well, fucking Hank Fraley was our center, and I was like, Hank, you're fucking awful. And he ended up playing 10 years. I'm like, I, you did. know, and I used to tell him, he'd be like, I know, dude, I'm pretty shitty, dude. And like, and I, and I tell him, like, you're fucking awful. I'm like, I mean, he like, like we'd run out of the huddle and there was a shade. He's like, Johnny, you got to fucking stab him. I'm like, dude, I, I got fucking peacap. And so you, I would like, like you the, block your man, I'll block mine. Right. So yeah, uh, no. So I would like step down, jam the a gap, and then I would kick vertical to fucking help if, if I was uncovered. He'd be like, dude, don't fucking leave me. This guy's gonna fucking kill me. And, <laughs> Jesus, uh, and, and then, come on. And the best is Hank's a fucking offensive line coach. I think he, I can't. I, th- I think he's the offensive line coach for Detroit. And, yes. Uh, um, I was gonna. I, Fucking don't have his contact, but I was going to hit him up. I'm like, are you going to tell him that you're a fraud? And just start fucking. <laughs> I, he, he better not run into me because I tell bring all his guys and make them listen to him. He's a fucking fraud. But, oh, uh, that'd be, wouldn't that be amazing? Well, just show, those, show up in his meeting room. Oh, oh show, show up in the meeting and be like, don't listen to any of this. He's a fucking fraud. Well, those who can't coach, right? Yeah. Well, so, no. no uh, he, he played, like, and the, the better part is, is we went out to Cleveland. He was playing Cleveland and he was out there fucking raping these kids. And I'm like, Hank, what happened? He's like, well, uh, I just think that we played against some really good people. There's a lot of dog shit players on, and I'm better than those guys. I just didn't happen to be better than uh, everybody else when we were in Philly. And I'm like, oh, okay, I go with that one. But no, dude, uh, honestly, playing tackle, like, you know, all of a sudden you're looking out there and there's straight hand at like a wide nine, and you're like, oh, oh fuck, dude, we got a seven step drop. And they're like, okay, hey, we're going to slide away from you. And you're like, motherfucker. And just hoping to like, if I'm going to get embarrassed, oh, it's going to be right in this situation. Just keep Strahan busy for a little bit. Oh. oh, yeah. And, and then, like, the quarterback's, like, holding it, and you're just like, throw the fucking ball as you're pushing the dude by. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that, that is right. I, I know tackles have a completely different approach to the game just because you've got these dudes who end up looking like ghosts in front of you. I remember the Broncos would bring, like, Von Miller down in the oh. middle of like Jesus Christ like get out where you belong you're, <laughs> you're you like, go from you go from Brock blocking like a 360 pound monster who felt like he could swat my head off my shoulders if he felt like it but I knew where he was going to be. It was just yeah. a matter of getting in really good position. Most and of the it time. was a big target too. So you like, you knew if you punched, like it, you didn't have to really like, actually it would help you to not have precision. Cause then you just kind of fucking mash into him. Yeah. But those other guys <laughs> exactly. were like, were oh. like fucking trying to hit a BB with a punch. You're like, God damn it. And they're fucking like moving their body and shifting around. You're like, God damn you. Oh, and also, when, when you were playing tackle, it's different than it is now because I remember shoot with North Turner, we used to, seven step drop 40 times a game it's yep. like every route seemed to have a nine nine and a nine on it it was like <laughs> we're all goes here again north and i just remember looking at the tackles like good luck here fellas well that's why you guys are six eight 360 pounds with like a fucking nine foot wingspan exactly uh, dude I, I remember we used to play uh shit man it was juan Cas- or um castillo um, oh yeah fuck, what was his first name it's not juan it's uh Oh, Luis. Yeah, Luis Castillo. You were thinking of your offensive line coach. I, I was thinking Philly. my offensive line coach. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was Luis. And then um, who was the black dude, 95? Sean. Oh, there, was, there was Jamal Williams. There was yep. Sean Phillips. Yep, Sean Phillips. Sean Merriman. And then Merriman. Yeah. I mean, it was a – and then Steve Foley, if you ever got a yeah. tangle with Steve Foley, who was just yeah. like the scariest human being. Yeah, no, when dude. I saw, it, when I saw him for the first time, I was like, where'd they make you? Dude, I remember uh, Luis um, – I think I was playing tackle and they, you guys went into that three, four and he was playing that tight shade on me. And I yeah. looked over and he had that like big elbow brace on and I knew his elbow was fucked up. And I was like, you know what? 
every time he gets in this defense, he goes for a hard inside charge, and he usually tries to give you a little like Reggie White fucking club. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I like just knew, and I kind of like just kind of took like a little bit of a lazy step and kind of gave it. And as soon as he fucking threw that thing, I fucking wrapped him over, and I got him underneath in like an arm bar, and then started nice. running this way with him and jumped and hyperextended his elbow Ooh. and fucking put him out. <laughs> oh, and that was like, it for the game. And that was it. And he was screaming, and I was like, "Sorry, dude. Like, we're boys. Sorry, we see you in Vegas, but I was like, not on my fucking watch. Exactly. I was like, oh, dude. Like, I'm just looking at it, and I'm like, you know, because you watch enough film and you see like the tendencies. You're like, man, it's fucking third long. They're in this 34. Totally. That guy's there. You know that he's got fucking uh, uh, this gap responsibility. I'm cursing yeah. too much. And um, all of a sudden, you're like. I know it's coming, and um, and I know he's got a bum elbow. I'm just gonna like give him my side of my body and loop him up. I mean, but yeah, the I'm, other guy I'm going was. For this. Oh, I, I remember Merriman too. God, that guy was annoying. His like lights out, like lightning bolt, oh. and all that nonsense. I'm like this guy. I tell you what, that sure did get the crowd going. He was annoying at practice for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I, you want know. talk about a a guy who completely changed the locker room though? Like that was a guy who, when he walked in, it was like, oh, we're we're kind of legit. I mean, in the off seasons, when he'd walk in, he'd be like 270, just stacked and like super confident. Everything that he did, it was like the best. And everybody kind of bought into that whole deal. The linebacker room completely changed over. The D lineman had a crazy attitude. And we always knew it's like, all right, game's on the line. This is kind of where lights does his thing. It's like, Hey, go sack Peyton Manning to end the division game and he he would do it i mean okay. he wasn't he wasn't technically like a, a super proficient football player but he worked hard on the football field yeah he, he never he would chase people down he was always running around and he just had, he lived for that lights out dance that was well, everything he um i've um i only got to get a little bit of him but he used to like fucking in willie ropes head bad like he would come in, you know, like Willie was uh, as big and strong as he was. Like he yeah. really wanted to dance. Like he wanted to punch and play little games and wanted dudes to shoot him. And oh. Merriman would come in and just give him like all up in the chin with his helmet. Yeah. And like, he, you know, he knew he was going to get mauled, but he would just go hard, like with his shoulder and his head into Willie's chin. Knowing like, hey, man, I'm like, uh, chip away. Yeah, I'm going to try to hurt him. And Willie be over there like so mad. Be like, he's hit me in the face. <laughs> like so mad. I'm like, yeah, that's what they do. And he's like, no, 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 no. Right side pass rushers don't, you know, he's like screaming. Like, you know? And uh, just like so mad. And so we used to joke, we'd be like in meetings. And if we ever watched, uh, you know, we'd watch the Chargers or anything, we'd always be like, lights out. Like slam the lights on him and be like, oh, Willie, don't, you know, just like, just, just fucking with him constantly about lights out, lights out. And, he said uh, right side pass rushers don't do that. It's like, what are the rules of engagement here? It's like, no, no, no. Well, the you power the rushers need to be on the other side. Well, they, you know, they always put like the big strong dude on the left side, you know, to try mm -hmm. to, you know, on the right but the left uh trying to yeah. push the pocket in the face and push him out to like the little athletic dudes that's right you know like the dwight freenies and ah uh, dude who is that little cat uh man that played opposite freeney that were like 50 oh robert mathis yeah robert mathis yeah man I robert, mathis and robert ended up having a a better career i guess number wise than yeah. freeney did yeah, no, he, um, and I, I think the reason was that everybody was so scared of Freeney mm -hmm. that they used to slide the protection and they would put these guys totally. at right tackle who were, you know, not allegedly as good athletes. And that dude was like 6'2", like 230, 225, oh, and yeah. had all those crazy spin moves. I mean, he was fine with me. I just said vertical and wait and just try to swallow him up. But dudes would try to go out there and get him. I'm like, just be real patient. It's like catching just, fish. Just yeah, throw your line out you. there and just wait for them to jump on your line. Don't like, like, don't troll for bait. Just exactly. lake fish. 
Yeah, I remember him at the beginning of his career. He was little and he was never in on the rundowns. And then they'd bring him in for the pass and he'd be super fresh and ran like a 4-4. And then at the end of his career, if you've seen him lately, I mean, he's not playing anymore. He's kind of the pass rush specialist for the Colts. But that dude is stacked. Oh, really? He ended up, he ended up getting to like 260, 270. Oh, man. Good. He, I'm glad I caught him, him on his off days. Yeah, <laughs> caught him when he was young, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I, always, I, I caught a lot of good people when they were young, and I caught a lot of dudes when they were a little old. And uh, the one guy I was always glad I never caught was Reggie White. We used to like, you know, like I remember early in my career because Reggie had, you know, since retired a few years, there just like yeah. occasionally something would come up with Reggie White in it. And you just see him like hump. Like I remember watching him hump Larry Allen. And, uh, you know, Larry's all, all bit a 6'3", you know, 345, benches like yeah. 700 pounds on the incline. You know, strongest man to ever walk in the NFL. And Reggie Big picked show. him up and threw him like a child. It's just insane. Yeah. No, I mean, dude. Yeah, so so like, you're like, okay, he did that to Larry Allen. What's he going to do to me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, that was a good one. So, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a fun job, man. I uh, like the strategy and the pieces. And, like, as you know, playing offensive line, it's like uh, this internal game within the game that nobody else gets to see other than the other people that do it, you know, through video and film and then, you know, connecting like this. And everybody's got about the same mentality on it. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, that's the one place like the offensive line that everybody can kind of we're generally the same type of beast in there. At least guys that had good success and good long careers like you've been humbled plenty. You're it's kind of a cool thing because you're an inferior athlete by far to the guys that you're tasked with blocking. But you use your intelligence, you use your knowledge of the play and use their technique against them. It's it's kind of a really cool thing it's such a mental position but i guess for the common person out there watching they're like yeah they're just big guys that kind of bump into each other but it's one of the most technical positions in all of sports well what's crazy now is um in the last geez i mean it's it's really just been in the last four years i mean you probably saw it right at the end but like do you remember when they started putting all the cameras on stringers above us yes now now they have something like i want to say it's it's four cameras per person um, there's four cameras dedicated to each person on the field so that they can actually take and do that digital ed- editing. So wow. they can do a 360 cam on every player. And then that's how they're doing. Like if you watch it on TV, but I was pretty fascinated, like watching, like all of a sudden they're like 360 spinning, showing this guy move here and they're showing all this stuff. And I'm like, the only way they would have it is if they had hundreds of cameras to be able to take yeah, all that information kind of lined up around. Yeah. And then, uh, there's a company, uh, I think it's called zebra that um, puts all the sensors and like, you know, measures all this. And yeah, so I did like a deep dive with, um, talked to one of their guys on, just cause I was curious and ended up getting hooked up with these guys, but just how they were doing the technology piece. And um, it's added such an element now that they, they can actually, like, you know, we would watch, you know, end zone sideline type stuff. Now they can actually get it to where it's actually individualized. So now you can see how you did on certain movements. Oh, that's gnarly. And I bet they can also eventually, if they're not doing it already, like frame the body up so they can see if your shoulders are tilted, mm-hmm. if your knees in the wrong direction. I mean, they can all kind of, well, that's, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, that's yeah. game changing right there. Well, I mean, just the ability to evaluate people and, um, you know, like things, and I'm sure you found this too, man. Like, uh, I'm really fascinated because you remember Steve Neal? You know, yeah. Steve Neal. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Steve, yeah. He's a San Diego guy. Yeah. But Steve was uh, our, um, he was our practice squad guy in Philly. So he was, was he? Pra- yeah, he was practice squad uh, the, with the Patriots and then they cut him and he was floating and they brought him in as our practice squad guy and he was there. And then the Patriots signed him off our practice squad and he went back and, you know, played for what, like, you know, decade. Yeah. And I, and I just remember him being like, no, I never played football, but 
this is like wrestling. And then seeing not only his ability to sense leverage, but his ability to stay in good positions. And I was like, man, like, you know, the skill set I come from is like a fighting boxing background. So like the ability to like cut a guy off. And it was just really interesting seeing that skill set and being like, man, I should have wrestled when I was younger. You know, a lot of offensive linemen said that because I was a high school wrestler and I felt like the, the skills completely translated like everything. And watching Steven, I mean, I used to love watching that dude. And I met him for the first time and I went up and, you know, offensive linemen kind of like pat each other on the belly or like give each other a little punch or whatever. Matt Light, my the left tackle for the Patriots oh, yeah. for a long time. Well, you know, I, I, I played there and I know Light. I oh, still, yeah. you know, you know, all yeah. those guys. Great yeah. dudes. I mean, that yeah. whole offensive line was awesome. Oh, so no, I, I, at least once a month, I, te- I text Matt and call him a piece fucking fat piece of shit. <laughs> Matt's hilarious because Matt's never enjoyed working out. No, no, never. He doesn't, he doesn't even like sports. Like he won't even watch sports to this day. He's like, no, I like hunting. I like fishing. Yeah. I think he has a a hunting show and he's got some big farm that they do all this charity stuff. And like, yes, I I thought he went into politics. uh, No, he got asked to be, that was John Runyon. Yeah. Well, yeah. But uh, um, there was a political event that uh, one of the guys that worked for us went to uh, for the Republican, for the um, uh, GOP. And Matt Light got asked to be the MC for the event. So, like, he's up there. And, you know, he's a fucking funny dude. Like, he's, he's got really good timing. Like, that's, a, that's kind of the way I always judged offensive linemen. Wasn't necessarily on their skill set, but how good their timing was in terms <laughs> of having a sense of humor. Like, could they drop the right joke at the right moment? Or were they totally, like, slow on their – so I was like, oh, the guy's got great timing. He must be a pretty good offensive lineman. <laughs> Yeah, so that's good. But, but, I've been uh, hunt, I've been hunting with him out in oh, Ohio. At his, he's got like a 600 yeah. acre farm out there where he's from, and he's built this thing up, and he does a leadership camp out there. That's what I've it been is. On, I've been on a turkey hunt with him, and sure enough, I shot my first turkey nice. in a, in a blind with Matt Light. It was amazing, and I had no idea how this was going to go down. He's like calling this turkey out for yeah, about like, 45 squeak, minutes. Squeak, squeak. Yep. Yeah, he had the little this yeah, little yeah, squeaker, and here come the what was it? A Jake is like the little Jake's came walking down trying to get the girl. And he's like, get the gun. And so we pull the gun up, shoot this thing out from like 50 yards. And I had no idea how it was going to go down. And Matt just bust out of this blind. And he's hauling across this cornfield and he steps on the Turkey's neck. And then he just starts <laughs> ringing its neck. And he's like, yeah. I was like, <laughs> You're like oh, nobody, nobody told me how this was going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I remember uh, in Kansas, we used to go uh, turkey hunting and uh, like, you know, I had my decoy in the little call thing and the Tom or whatever, the Jake and Tom comes over and starts banging the decoy. I come out with the um, with my bow and I shot it in the neck and the thing was looking at me still humping the uh, uh, the decoy <laughs> as it like went over and then you go and you stop on it. And I was like, wow, what a way to go. I was like, yeah, you just went out like you wanted. But yeah, no, that's commitment. Lights, uh, dude, he's a funny dude, man. He, um, yeah, but he, he got asked to do this deal with like, uh, to be MC for this event. And then one of the guys I know rolled over and introduced himself and he's like, you wouldn't happen to have John, or to know John Wellborn. And, uh, dude, he said his eyes like lit up and he's like, is he still in pretty good shape? <laughs> First thing he said. And uh, uh, so the dude texts me. He's like, "Oh, I ran him out light." And I was like, "Oh yeah." And he's like, "The first question he asked me was, uh, are you still in pretty good shape?'" And I was like, "That motherfucker." I was like, oh, okay. uh, "I was like, why? How does he look?" He's like, "Fat." I'm like, "Awesome." Yes. Yeah, he's he's hardly working out, but he introduced me to Stephen Neal, and I like, I was like, "Hey, Stephen, nice to meet you." And then kind of on the way out, like, gave him the little gut punch, and I was, 
I was young at the time and I was just so amazed with how strong his midsection was. Yeah. It was no wonder he could get in all those freaky positions. Uh, dude, and, he had and still stay in balance. It was he unreal. had the worst technique. Uh, like I remember Which at is one why point, his shoulders ended up being really yeah, hurt. Yeah, and his elbows. But yeah. he would uh he would square a dude up, get his feet wide, and then the dude would try to do this and he would kind of do this like windmill like kind of deal, like pivot at the waist. And these yeah. guys would be like throwing his whole body like a weeble wobble. But he somehow kept like straight legged, like in the ground. And I remember watching him and being like, fuck, man, that's awful. But you won. So like, uh, you know, if it's, if it's broke, don't fix it. But like, man, that's, I don't know you're going to last that long. Like you could like <laughs> set and punch and do all that. He's like, ah, it just feels like if I can just get in front of him and grab him and kind of wrestle with him, it kind of help more helpful. I'm like, whatever works for you, dude. Don't you know what? You it's, it's really like wrestling when you think about it is one of the only places that you can get all of this resistance training through all these weird planes and on different leverage and balance points. And so that's why he was so strong. He was just wrestling strong. I mean, there's country strong boys and then there's wrestling strong dudes who just, I mean, they're, they're fighting, they're pulling, they're trying to maintain their posture and head up all the time. And you just think about that strength that comes from like seven minutes of straight resistance training I mean, it's it's no wonder he felt yeah. so strong as he was a world champion wrestler. Yeah, like I, I think he was um, I, I, like I remember him. Ex- like I remember we went out and drank beers and he was like he kind of explaining his uh, his wrestling lineage. And it was like, uh, yeah, I pretty much like I'm like, well, you, he's like, I didn't win a gold medal, but like I won the equivalent and all this stuff. And then there was really no, nothing else to do. So uh, my agent at the time was like, why don't you try football? And he's like, Perfect. OK. And he's like, I never played and just, you know, seems like I could do it. I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah. okay. I got to look up, I got to look up the score, but Steve and Neil, I'm pretty positive beat Brock Lesnar in the national championships yeah. in college yeah, when that's Brock true. was at Minnesota and it yep. wasn't even close. Yeah. No, like whooped his ass and then went on just, and, uh, who, who was the one dude that was on the biggest loser? Um, Rolo or oh, Roland Gardner. Yeah. So there was some like, yeah. I like there was some weird deal where, uh, that Roland Gardner beat like the Russian that had never been beat. And then Neil, beat right. him, you know, some like, uh, I'm fucking up the story. Uh, but I'm sure we'll figure it out here in a second. But like, man, I just remember we had a gang of beers and he was explaining it to me and I was like, wow, that's, huh. It it just made me realize that if you can do this job and you're like a big, strong, physical guy, like there's there's places to that'll find you. But man, watching the combine now, dude, there was some like 365 pound dude ran like a 510. I was like, oh, my God, 510, 40. Totally insane. A kid from Iowa just jumped 36 and a half inches. He had a 10 one broad jump. I mean, the dude was a total freak show. He jumped better than every one but 19 wide receivers at the combine. So uh, I was talking to Dave Spitz, who's um, the head of Cal Strength today, and he like trained a bunch of combine guys. So we were just catching up today on the phone, and I was like, "Man, like they, there were a lot of like freaks out there. Like what, you know, like have things really evolved? I mean, you know, if you go back like even three or four or five years ago, there wasn't stuff like this. Like what's right. happened? And he made a pretty good point. He said um, because the game has changed so much and it's become so neutered and not nearly as violent and physical as it used to be. I mean, you know, when you go pads like three times a year uh, other than on Sundays and, right. you know, you can't hit quarterbacks and they've kind of really just changed the the game from what we remember it being when we, you know, when we were young guys. Yeah, really league. combative. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he goes, guys that 
those guys probably existed, but they never got to this position because they weren't able to survive the the meat grinder. And now you're seeing these guys that are these real big, pretty athletes that just wouldn't have had a fucking chance. And now all of a sudden these guys are coming out of the woodwork and he's like, it's just because the game has changed into this, you know, oh, uh, you know, like um, the just everybody's an incredible athlete and it's really they're they're really kind of focused on athleticism and like you know the you know the tough gritty steve neal you know nick hardwick um you know wrestler guys that you know didn't do this he's like those you know that doesn't really exist anymore because everybody's you know like what's his vert what's this what did he play and it's like mm-hmm. it's, it's turned into you know we we're talking about Moneyball, but it's really turned into this hey you know he has all these pieces and the intangibles and the only guy that probably goes against that is uh, belichick who will continue yeah. to win super bowls because he finds people that know how to play hard when tough it's gritty no football conceptually they understand all that it is such an interesting thing and i think all sports have kind of headed this direction it's all about speed and space so you remember what defensive linemen and i remember what nose tackles looked like when i came in and it was ted washington and it was vince <laughs> wilford ted ted yeah. washington was like 400 pounds and there was a guy turdell sands who played for the oakland yeah. raiders that was yeah. 390 pounds at six eight and probably yeah. 12 to 15 percent body fat i mean these were like remarkable specimens Dude, they don't I've, exist I've told these guys, in the world anymore i've told these guys about ted washington and i remember uh, they <laughs> they had him at 365 in the program and i remember when he walked out and this is when he was still in buffalo i remember he walked out and he was ever bit of about 425 because i even saw him and i was like Hey Ted, that three sixty five. He's like, yeah, that was from college. <laughs> and then, uh, and, you know, and then I played against him. Like, like it, it just was like, oh, hey Ted, what's up? New uniform, you know? Because then he went to the Bears, and he went to the Raiders, mm-hmm. and he just like, what's up, Walmart? I'm like, we're we gonna do this. He was with the Browns. He was everywhere. Oh yeah, no, he went all these places, and like he'd just be like, what's up, Walmart? He's like, we gonna do this? I'm like, you know the deal. Let's get out there. <laughs> don't fucking, don't fucking break my back. But yeah, I mean, he was fucking like enormous. It was a bear. I mean, he was he was a bear that larger than some actual bears out there. It's like him, Sam Adams. I mean, yeah. you remember these yeah. guys? John Henderson is like yeah. Albert Hainsworth. They don't make them yeah. like that anymore. And and really, for a reason, it's like these guys got to stay on the field. They got to be fast. There's a lot of space. And then I think from an offensive lineman standpoint, you're not really asked to do what we were asked to do on a frequent basis. You're used. They're used a lot of deception, a lot of speed, yeah. and Oh shit, man! I'm, I'm I'm watching I'm watching Mahomes and uh, that um, the right tackle that they uh, Mitchell uh, Schwartz um, uh, for is it Schwartz that's the right tackle for the Chiefs? Yes, man, he got his fucking ass handed to him. And, but it doesn't uh, matter. Well, uh, that's the thing. Like he was getting beat, which was allowing Mahomes to like work in space, and then yes. he would like run and sting these people. And I'm like, I like I would tell the if I was D line coach, I'd be like, yo, man, like don't beat that guy anymore. Just like fit him up. Like, don't like, uh, because you know what he's doing is he's picking a side and then Mahomes is so athletic. And the other thing that tripped me out is ability to like change speed. He would like come out of the run and then all of a sudden somebody be closing on him and he would hit this other gear and just like disappear on people. And I was like, dude, this guy's ability to change direction. Like I would have loved to play with this guy. I remember uh, Tony Gonzalez and I were texting during the Super Bowl, And, um, I was like, man, can you imagine if we had Mahomes? He's like, dude, I would have taken that defense. He's like, that defense is stingy. They don't give up any points. He's like, all Mahomes has to do is go out there and just ad-lib. I mean, he doesn't even need to have players around him. I mean, the, a report just came out that he didn't even understand defenses that he was looking at until yeah, halfway yeah. through last season. That, like, that's he what was, I was a just league MVP say. and a Super Bowl MVP. 
but it's just because of the extracurriculars and his unbelievable talent. But, and then, but, but they've changed the league. Uh, yeah. Like, so do you, do you remember there was a play where he ran over on the sideline and yes. he like took a step and then went back in and then like yeah. spun around and all that. And I was like, but that was is, against the Texans. I, I was like that. I was like, as you know, if you're a running back and you get out on the um, outside the pocket and you're running towards the sideline and you don't go out of bounds, you're going to get killed. You're going like, to pay it, for it. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, they would have like ended his life. And, yep. uh, and all of a sudden he's like spinning back and these guys are doing this Olay arm tackle crap. And like, he like all of a sudden is making people look stupid and like nobody was, uh, was willing to hit them or hit him and nobody's willing to punish that dude. And I'm like, man, the guys I played with would have absolutely killed him. Oh, would have drilled him. We used to say it about LT all the time. It's like, those are business decisions. When he'd step out of bounds, yeah. he's making a business decision so he could keep playing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, because you know <laughs> you what? You had to all make money. those choices. All they got to do is step back once and then they get hit by the pile. I mean... Dude, I've, I've told these guys my welcome to the NFL moment was uh, playing against Junior Seau. And um, I was playing left guard, and I'm looking at Junior, and I'm supposed to work, like, basically run the sweep to the right, like, outside zone. And I, like, know that i got to get Junior. And he's over there playing on the slot. And I'm like, how, like, like I don't like, you, you know, he had no responsibility. So he was over there, like, playing on the slot. And at the snap of the ball, I take off running as fast as I can, and he beat me over the top and made the tackle. Jesus. And I remember him coming back, pat me on the back, and he was like, well, or I'm on the butt, and he was like, welcome to the NFL. I was Jared, like, he, got a, he I, did whatever he wanted. Yeah, I mean, and he had, I mean, we used to call it the cat defense. I got that cat, you got this cat, you got that cat. <laughs> and that was it, because Junior didn't know defenses. But, I mean, there, there's an example of a dude that didn't know defenses, didn't know responsibilities, and they just said, fucking go out there and make a play, and he did. I mean, I think with Mahomes, they probably, probably gave him five plays. And they just used a lot of formations for misdirection. And he gets it called in, and he just has five plays. And then, you know, Andy Reid's got like a billion misdirections and all these different formations and this and this. I mean, as I'm watching him, like, okay, he did sprint right option. He does inside, outside zone. He rolls out. I mean, they probably – it's just like – it looks like different plays because the dude doesn't really understand what he's doing or he's breaking coverages or people are doing things. He's just out there ad-libbing. Yes. Like, looking at it, I'm like – That's right. It's like when you're – if you're a defense, you go just keep him in the pocket. You just you have to keep him there. I wouldn't even rush. Yeah. I would just I would set up little pylons and just keep him contained. Yeah, just like allow the guy to kind of go up. Like don't pick a side. You know, play both gaps and then just just don't rush him. Like make him yeah. like make him beat you. Because man, as that right tackle kept getting beat, he just kept sidestepping him and then going off and like gashing him. And I'm like, is this dude getting beat on purpose? Because this is awful. <laughs> and uh, he was just getting he was just, yeah they were like hey a lunge every time at this dude and let him pick a side and we're just going to go around and win I guess the, the brilliant thing about it is that you just know how stupid defensive players are and they can't help <laughs> they can't help themselves well they are the dumbest human beings on the planet and we used to as you know we used to outsmart them constantly <laughs> like we used to make dummy calls I'd be like you know, and they, they yeah. like go for it. Or like Every time. Every time. Every <laughs> oh time. Oh, my God. Dude, my favorite would be like, he's in a run stance. He's in a run stance. And I could pass block out of everything because I, I just try to put all my weight real far forward with my hand. Oh, I just yeah. push down. He's oh, yeah. Heavy. He's, he's heavy. He's heavy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then he's be like, they're, they're, you know, I'm like, oh, you know. And then like the other one, like looking at people. And then, then they would like, they would look and he'd go the other way. I'd be like, these guys are so dumb. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, I, well, that's what, yeah. Uh, that, that was like her favorite deal. Like, oh, they're so dumb. They're just morons but simpletons but they are good athletes yeah and uh, like it's like uh you have all of your athleticism and your meager intelligence against dudes that are really <laughs> really sharp and detail-oriented individuals yes yeah. 
And that's why when you ended up facing one who was also super smart and knew the game and understood how you were trying to attack him, it's like, oh, dude. Yeah, it's going to be a long the, day. Oh, the perfect one that I thought was always the biggest pain in the ass was Richard Seymour. Because oh, yeah. he was, he knew football really well. Yeah. He knew what you were doing. He understood formations. He understood personnel groupings. He understood all of it. And he was and he real long. He, oh, and he was super long and strong. And then he ended up being an asshole on top of all of it. So yep. you got like the perfect storm for a defensive lineman. Yeah. No, he he, he was real long. I just remember like, uh, I mean, what was he, 6'6", six, six, but he was probably long, like 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, he said really long arms. Yeah. So when yes, you came did. off, he was real good about like keeping his head off of people so he could see. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I just always remember thinking, like, if I can get his head down, at least, like, hit him and draw, uh, like, a blow with his helmet, I can get his head down, and then, you know, there's some some form of help. But he was yeah. so good on being able to, like, look around and see where the ball was. Uh, that was uh, that was a frustrating dude to play against. Yeah. Yeah, that whole New England defensive front, I mean, for a long stretch, was, like, unbelievable. Well, they had him, and then who was the guy that played their left end? He was like a... Ty Warren. That's who it was. That guy was Ty a beast, Warren, too. The, Ty was... His technique was flawless. Oh. And then they had Jarvis Green, who That's would right. come in, and he was a really good pass rusher. They had Vince Wilfork. They had all yep. these outside line, but inside... I mean, everybody. Like, historic yeah. names you would remember at the yeah, linebacker Vrabel. position. Dude, they had yeah. Uh, dude, yeah. Vrabel, I've, I've never... I've, I've told these guys, uh, I'm not going to repeat it on the podcast, but... Um, I've never in my life heard anybody talk more shit than than Mike Vrabel, Jesus, which is funny that now that he's a head coach. I'm like, Ugh. I was like, you, there has to be some NFL films of him being <laughs> mic'd up or something, because like the stuff that was coming out, I'm like, dude, those are kind of like, you know, I mean, let's find it. It's pretty deep. Yeah, yeah I was like, dude, this now. is real, like hurtful type stuff. Like he's memorizing, your, <laughs> he's like memorizing your mom's names. He's questioning your sexuality. Oh, I, I, I just like, I like, I remember, uh, uh, I saw him in Hawaii and we were, um, just, I was like, yo man, like, uh, I mean, I'm fine with it, but like saying some hurtful stuff, man, like people might come looking for you, you know, him, he just, oh, he's, he's the that, total, total jock. He is like an absolute jock. So with the fact he's that like he's like the alpha betas. <laughs> nerds, oh, totally. Nerds. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So we had a, what was it? A playoff game at Qualcomm in 2006. They ended up beating us and we had a quarterback sneak at in the third quarter, into the third quarter as time was kind of running down. Vrabel drives his shoulder into my shin and he's cranking on my ankle <laughs> as I'm standing up over the top of the pile and he's trying to break my leg and I'm beating on the top of his head in this playoff game. I'm like, geez, I'm going to get a 15 yard flag, but he's about to break my ankle. And Dealman, my left guard looks at him. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was River's arm. And, <laughs> and, and Dealman's like, you could see him light up. And Dealman was such an angry, pissed off dude anyway. And he was a really, he was a bad man. I mean, yeah. he was a big, strong guy. With what really happened to him? Uh, did he have concussions? A, was that what it was? Pardon the interruption, but the Luke Summers has a very special message before we dive into this heavy-duty story about the impact of severe concussions on football players. Listen up, coaches. In a time like this, you need a reliable solution for remote coaching more than ever. At Power Athlete, we stand for bold things like battling the bullshit. We empower performance, but most importantly, in a time like this, we serve coaches. So it would be an absolute shame if we weren't here helping you find a solution to extend your coaching beyond the four walls of your gym. Enter our partners, Train Heroic. They are not just an app. They help us deliver 
thousands of training sessions a day and help us create a best-in-class coaching experience all from the other side of the internet. The entire crew at Train Heroic, from the mailroom to the boardroom, these dudes and chicks, they show up every day to serve coaches. Hear me when I say this, coaches. You are more than your gym. You need to expand your reach, need to get in the game, you need to head to trainheroic.com and tap on the free trial and find out what these guys can do for you. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, so we ended up having a really big concussion, and I think it was 2011 in New York, and he had a grand mal seizure on the flight on the way home about 30 minutes outside of San Diego. It was That was a terrifying experience. I mean, that was, that was one that uh, I was the first one there as we're kind of all gearing down, we'd watch the tape. We kind of six hour flight right on the way yeah. back and, and deal had this seizure sitting in his chair. I think he was watching a DVD or something. And I, I heard a noise and then I think he dropped his iPad and I looked back, he was two rows behind me and I went and grabbed his head and I didn't know what else to do. So I was like, I had kind of remembered. It's like, don't let somebody swallow their tongue or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah but I tried to pry his jaw open and now I know why they call it a seizure. Like everything is seized. He was just like this and you couldn't move him. I mean, he was as stiff as a boulder. The, his whole body was incredibly tense and hard and I couldn't do anything. So I just, I had the guy behind him grab him so he didn't like fall over and hit his head, went to the back, yelled for the doctor to come running up. And, and we just kind of rode it out there for 30 minutes. Ambulance ended up showing up on the tarmac once we landed in san diego that was the end of that season i mean you could imagine guys seeing our our baddest dude have a seizure and then trying to go back to play after that it was yeah it was a a pretty steep decline from that moment on what year was that was that 2010 i think that was 2011 2011 i think it was 2011 and that was same year if you remember colt mccoy had a massive concussion or got knocked out like drilled in the face for the browns and then they put him back in and so that was kind of i think that was the beginning of the concussion hype it was those two guys and then it hit its peak i don't know 2016 17 and since kind of faded a little bit which i'm thankful for but you know that was that was ever, uh, what's um i mean has he recovered is he, he uh, never he never played again he's good he's good i mean he's got two boys they're 10 and 8 years old and he's coaching and highly involved in their lives and and chris made enough money not to ever have to do anything again but he he seems good when i'm with him nice that's good yeah, yeah, yeah so he stuff, never man. he never played again though yeah, that was it. And I thankfully, hope so. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine trying to go back out there and do that after having experience. It was, it was unreal. It's like we had the whole scenario was bad. So we only had seven active offensive linemen during the game. Two of them were on special teams. Both of them had been concussed on the kickoff return. And so huh. they were out. We ran a power dealman ran into we had a it was a counter actually so he was blocking the end man on the line and just got drilled in the side of the head and he came kind of staggering back to the huddle and he's like hold on give me a moment and ended up going in the next play and we had to audible to the same run play and you it was just it was an awful experience everybody on the offensive line was like he shouldn't be in here we didn't have anybody else to come in. We knew he shouldn't be in there. The officials knew he shouldn't be in there, but it was kind of before there was yeah. this 
all these alarms around it. So it's kind of a different paradigm, but Philip audible the play and it was like, Oh my God, all of our hearts sunk. It was like, you're like, what are you doing? Just throw it away. I was like, can we just take a knee or something? Just lay a fumble to snap. Just Man, do all uh, that. I had a shoulder surgery like 10 weeks ago and I've been dealing with this like frozen shoulder deal. And uh, I'm like, man, I've been going to these PT, these PTs and just killing myself. But it's funny because um, uh, like I've been having like a bunch of it's kind of like radiating up into my neck and it was like the dude was working on my neck. He's like, man, did you ever hurt your neck? And I'm like, yeah, uh, the Rams 2005. Uh, we had a similar deal where they were, you know, bringing some defense and our audible was uh, basically an inside trap. So yep. I was, you know, just basically like, I think it was a tackle. I can't remember if I was playing guard or tackle, but basically I was playing on the right. And then it was like a short trap and, uh, they called the audible on the, you know, whatever first and 10. And I got the dude pretty good, you know, who's expecting an inside trap on, uh, you know, first and 10. And so I hit the guy, get a pretty good hit. We have a nice little gash. It's like, you know, second and five and, uh, they audible to the same play. Do it again. And, and we ran it again. And, uh, I think we got like a three yard gain. Dude still didn't know it. All of a sudden, we audible on the third, uh, third and short, uh, to the exact same trap. This time, the dude knows it's coming. He had heard, he had heard the call twice yeah, already. He, he heard the call. And they're not that. I mean, they're dumb, but, like, come on. <laughs> he takes a step up field and fucking rockets inside and pinned my head on the side of my right shoulder and oh. uh, herniated a disc in my neck. And I came out, and I was like, like couldn't move and uh and like i remember like the i was like man like and i I think our defense went out and they ran out the clock or whatever it was i'm in the, like the locker room and like i'm like i can't move my neck like this is awful and uh we had an osteopath that came in and did some like weird flying karate kick like got his like, foot on my, <laughs> like like got his foot on my shoulder got traction on my neck and then popped it and like i felt it click back in and i was like oh god and uh I was fine, but as they were working on my neck, like yesterday, I was like, he's like, do you ever herniate a disc? I'm like, or hurt your neck? I'm like, yeah, right where you're pushing right now. And yes, like, I, I had did. this vivid memory and I was like, oh, fuck, dude. Like, oh. and then when you're talking about dumb defense alignment, I'm like, they're dumb, but not the same play three plays in a row. Yeah, please. I mean, they're going to be on to us eventually. <laughs> oh, man, God. but I'm, I'm glad to know he's okay. That was a scary deal. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, well, kind of. He's really good, but he, he ended up being chasing Vrabel down as we changed quarters going down to the fourth and Vrabel was coming up and he wasn't apologizing to me for breaking my ankle or trying to break my ankle. He was apologizing to Dealman. He's like, dude, I'm so sorry. And Dealman's like, I don't want to hear that shit. You get the hell out of here, man. It's just, he just couldn't have it. So that was the one time that I had seen Vrabel, the ultimate jock be like, Oh God, what did I just do? Here? Oh, Chris Dealman's a big dude, man. He's kind of he's, a scary individual too. He's a good he player. Was a, he was, a, yeah, he was a really good player. Yeah, he's a good spot. Nice. Nick, I want to get into preparing. So y'all had a string of competition with the Patriots. So it looks like 2006, 7, AFC Championship. You had LT, you had Rivers. So what is it like to prepare for the Patriots? Because in the outsider's perspective, it's this big dynasty, this ultimate coach that can't be beat. What's the mindset in the locker room that y'all took into that game? Well, we never had a lot of success against the Patriots, so I wouldn't take my mindset as the one that should be taken. I think we only beat them one time. No, maybe twice. We beat them once uh, when Matt Castle was the quarterback, I think. And then we also beat them in 2005 in New England at the beginning of the season. And I, I think that game just kind of worked out for us. And it really worked out for us because they were playing this kind of old school 40 defense, which actually the Patriots busted out 
against the Rams in the Super Bowl two years ago. And Sean McVay could not figure it out because he had never seen it. And he, it was a real old school thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it like was a like a Chuck Bednarik defense. It was like an 80s, 90s defense. So if you didn't have any older guys on the staff who would kind of work through that or you hadn't seen it before and they busted out in the Super Bowl for the first time, you would get stymied. And so we had a really good plan going against them. We ended up running up the score on them. I think it was 41-13. Should have been 48-13. But they uh, called back a, a really long run that we had towards the end of that game. That was the game that we had success because – we had seen this defense. We had knew we knew that they were going to be in it because nobody could do anything against it. And so we just happened to have a really good plan for that defense. But it was early in the season, as we've seen. Patriots aren't where they end up in the playoffs being ultimately. So I think we caught them at the right time. And then we beat them when Tom Brady tore his ACL and Matt Castle was the quarterback. Was the 40 defense where they play four down and then they got like the one ace? Like they're playing like the, the middle they linebacker? Ended up, they ended up having the one middle linebacker and they walked the will yeah. and the Sam onto yep. the line. Yeah, yeah, so it was like... It's like a goal line almost. Yeah. It's a goal line defense. defense. And so then that was what the but Rams' problem was. you got to have good dudes that, that can play like man-to-man. I mean, because I remember they are probably playing man-to-man and then the, uh, the safeties were playing over the top and like, you know, that kind exactly. of mixed cover too. Yeah. Exactly right. I, I mean, yeah. I know that. And, yeah, and you have to, as an offense, have the ability to be able to go left or right. And so the Rams didn't have – they always worked out of that kind of bunch right or bunch left formation, didn't have a fullback. We had a fullback, a really good one, Lorenzo Neal at the time. One of the best. So, so we are kind of – yeah, hopefully he makes it to the Hall of Fame at some point. I mean, he's, he's had a pretty storied career. Yeah. And well, I, you, I guess – You guys also had Max Strong too, didn't you? No, we Seahawks. didn't. No, he was Seattle. Oh, oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, by by far the best name for ever, wow. ever a fullback. Ever. It doesn't yeah. get better than that. <laughs> it doesn't. But I, I guess going against the Patriots, kind of what you really have to have is like a Rolodex of information because what you expect to get is not what you're going to get. And then if you do the expected, you're going to get burnt on it. So we went up there in 2007 in the AFC Championship game, and it wasn't really kind of an apples-to-apples apples game. I had a Liz Frank that I was playing through. Antonio Gates had a turf toe where his big toe earlier in that season, basically he tore the plate off the bottom of his big toe and dislocated his toe to the point where it was just pointing straight up in his shoe. So he was, I don't even want to say he was at 40%. He was like a walking statue out there. I mean, he, had a, he wasn't a great blocker ever in his career, but in the red zone, that's where he really shined. He couldn't do anything in the playoffs. Rivers had torn his ACL the week before in the division game in Indianapolis and made it back for the game. We didn't practice with him during that week except on Friday before the game. We didn't really know what was going on. We know he had a, We knew he had a surgery to clean up the meniscus so his knee would unlock but he also had a torn ACL that was going to have to be dealt with after the season was over. So he was playing on a torn ACL and then LT ended up having a partially torn MCL. So our guys were all just beat to crap and we could not for the life of us score a damn touchdown against the Patriots. So it ended up being 21 to 12. They limit, they held us to four field goals while we were down there. And then I think at one point when LT was sitting on the sidelines, we had Michael Turner, who ended up having a really good career with the Atlanta Falcons. That dude was an absolute stud. He came in, but we got him kind of a, a standard North Turner formation. 
It was an overloaded power to the left. Junior Sale happened to be on the Patriots at the time, and he's like, I know this formation. And Belichick, <laughs> Belichick called a defense where they they angled the line, yeah, yeah, slanted, reached, slanted the slanted. line right to, and Junior shot through the A-gap behind me as I was blocking away. And it was just a really well-called defense because he knew what he was getting. He knew when they when we marched on that personnel grouping, that's exactly the play we were going to get. It was down in the red zone, and that was our fourth down play, and that was really our shot at the game. And, well, they made the play, and we didn't make the play. And I think that's always been the difference for me watching the Patriots and playing against them is when it comes time to make the play, they make it. Except this year. You know, it's probably the first time I've ever seen the Patriots. And, and I'll tell you, just having been there in that organization for, you know, what, like the whole, you know, the whole training camp of preseason, um, I ended up getting hurt in that last preseason game. And I was fucking so pissed because I was like, man, I'd really like to play on this team because I hadn't played on a team like that in years. Like, I remember we were in Philly when when we would go into a place that was like, there was no doubt in our mind that we were going to win. And if we lost, it was because something fucking miraculous happened. It was the same yes. thing with the Patriots. Like, you're going in and you're like, we're going to fuck like it wasn't if we were going to win. It was how bad we were going to win and blow people That's out. Right. It was just a really interesting uh, just kind of like, um, you know, Bill Belichick. Just don't do your just do your fucking job. Like, don't do more. Don't do less. Just do your job. If everybody does your job and I do your job, we're all going to go home happy. That's what I love so much about it. I, I just had a chance to sit down with a leading sports psychologist. He's almost 80 years old. And that's the one thing piece of advice that he kind of gives people is he's like, this doesn't need to be a rah-rah fest. And Bill Belichick's certainly not a rah-rah coach. Like I was with him at the Pro Bowl and it's really just matter of fact, everything's super matter of fact. Hey, do your job. Can we get you to not jump off sides, please? I remember we had Tarek Glenn and Matt Light were our tackles at the time. He was like, which one of you two assholes is going to be the first ones to jump off sides here? Like, we know this is, we know this is going to happen. You're going to do it. Which one of you is going to do it? Could we get you to sit in there? And he's like, and I know you don't play right tackle on a regular basis. Like, just fucking block your guy, would you please? And just kind of the, the frankness, the matter-of-factness, which really does – it makes it easier to hold guys accountable – and then the do your job thing. I mean, that to me is just so brilliant because you don't have to glorify this thing. It's like, all I have to do is focus on the target that I'm hitting, execute my assignment on this one play. And I think that's why they get such great performance and really heightened games because the other teams all freaking out and trying to make it this emotional affair. And we're going to overwhelm you with intensity. And it's like, we're just going to do our job. Yeah. And, uh, um, I remember, um, how simple the playbook was like I mean yes. I mean when, when I was at Philly and like even Kansas City with uh ah uh, fuck I can't remember his name um fuck I can't remember who our offensive coordinator was so come to me in a second but like I mean our playbook was like I mean we must have had 400 plays in different formations and I'm going this oh. and all of a sudden when I get to the Patriots they hand me the playbook and I'm like it, it looked like uh the in-season book you know, like, um, so when you go to training camp, you get this like phone book. And then as soon as the season starts, you get your like week, you know, they give you your, your playbook, but it's like this big post from this. Yeah. And so they hand me the book and I was like, is this the training camp book? This looks like the week book. And they were like, there is no difference in the books. And, um, you know, they were like, Hey, go home tonight and learn everything. So I just went home and learned all the place and, um, you know, like, okay, Hey, like, you know, the translation of how they're calling. Cause I was from a West coast offense. Right. So just being able to like, but then you're looking at it, you're like, okay, everybody does the same shit. And, um, I came back the next day and it was like, man, that was by far the simplest install, the simplest offense. 
nice. I've ever seen. And it was just, it was very sound fundamentals and down in distances and not, you know, not doing things out of the ordinary and like knowing what it is. And then it was pretty cool in that uh, they had a game plan. And then based off of like what was seemed to be clicking that week and who was doing well, all of a sudden there was like this huge adjustment before the game. Like the day before night install, hey, we're going to really focus on this. This is what we saw a week in practice and this is what we wow. like. So it was, um, it was uh, uh, really different in that they almost like, you know, hey, this guy's playing good. This guy's doing this. Like for some reason, Brady's throwing this well or the run, you know, they, they were yeah. able to look at like, hey, here's the place. Here's what we're going to do. And then let's make some changes. And um, it was really simple. It's like always I, seemed just so precise to me and rehearsed. And I think that's why you get to execute at such a high level is with North Turner, we used to have 250 pass routes yeah. up at a time, which is just, you don't have time to practice all those and all the different formations. But don't you and, think that they do that out of ego? Like, um, I, like, I think it's out of fear almost. I think they're just, I think he's like, I need my plays. Like there is a little binky, you know, there's like a stuffed animal. It's like, <laughs> I need to be comfortable and have all of my plays and, here you guys go. You work on those and I'm going to hold on to my plays really dearly. That way, if they show something that's unexpected, I can pull out this play from 1989 with Flipper Anderson yeah. and I can, I can make it work. Al but, Saunders. It, but none of it works if nobody's rehearsed it. Well, uh, Al Saunders, that's who our guy was with Dick Vermeil. Like uh, just like these install meetings and the volume of plays in this and being like, dude, like if somebody gets hurt, like there's no way that they're going to be able to pick up this deficit unless mm-hmm. they've been doing this from day one. And uh, it just, it, it was really just very refreshing to go to the Patriots and be like, okay, like nobody's giving me any rah, rah bullshit. Everybody's like, just do your job. And everything is very simple to be able to get done. And I remember when I got hurt, I was like, damn. So when I got hurt, I didn't say anything and uh, just figured, you know, I've never, I've started every game in my NFL career. I'll just make the team and say something after the first week. Yeah, and then uh, they called me with like two minutes left, and we're like, "Hey, we got to cut you, but we're going to resign you tomorrow." And then uh, they, and I was like, "Motherfucker!" So then they cut <laughs> me, and then they called me the next day, and they made me go back through the physical. Oh! And, and so I chipped off a, like a piece of bone in my knee, and it got stuck in the joint. And as the doc's working on me, he's like, "I can't pass you on this. Why don't you tell us this like yesterday or the day before?" And I'm like, "Why do you think you guys were going to fucking cut me?" And then, uh, <laughs> I, and then I came home, had knee surgery. And then was rehabbing, and um, I got a call from Cal Turley, and he had had a seizure at a bar. And they took him in and did a CAT scan and figured out he had early onset Alzheimer's and was having all these issues. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I like did like the little stat search, and I realized I had more starts and more plays than he did. And I'm like, yeah. 10 years is good. I'm out. That's, and that was the end yeah. of it. Wrap this thing up. Well, yeah, like yeah. that thing with Dealman, like, you know, you see that, and you're like, ooh, okay. And you're kind of like doing the math in your head, and you're like, man, I've probably taken more hits. Like, why is it that some people react in a different way? Yeah. And um, I still felt pretty good, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull the ripcord, you know? Yeah. And that was kind of the advice I got from my strength coach early on. He's always like, don't stay too long. He's like, get what you need out of this, make the money, and get the hell out of here. And I almost retired after that dealman issue. And that was in my eighth season. And then they threw a big grip of money at me to come back for three more years. And it was like, it, it was hard. It was just, obviously I couldn't turn it down because I didn't. And so I went back and I played three more years, but I tell you going back into that locker room, the first year without Chris there, that was hard. I mean, no matter the kind of money that they're throwing at you and what I had seen and kind of getting over that and, realizing that we're different that I'm hopefully going to be okay. I mean, that was, it was tough and you know, it's um, not an easy decision to make, but 
ended up playing through 10, made it, made it 11 because of that week one start. But then, yeah, I'm just, I'm thankful for where my health is at now. Well, I mean, dude, you lost a ton of weight. I mean, yeah, what, tell us about that, man. What was the, what was the, uh, what was the process? What was the impetus? <laughs> uh, and John knows this, every offensive line coach will tell you, it's like, you're either going to go one way or another when you're playing, you're either going to get really big or you're going to get really small. And I said, well, I ain't getting big. Cause I was a wrestler in high school and I knew what it was like to have a six pack and to be able to climb 30 feet of rope without my feet on that thing. And I was like, I want to get back to that where I just felt completely capable of doing anything and right when I got hurt I kind of had designed this little weight loss plan for myself as this protocol that I put myself on and it kind of factored in what I had known at the time and what I had heard and I just came up with my own plan and so basically what I did was I called it the 4231 plan and it was a little bit of metabolic confusion intermittent fasting I would do food and nutrient timing based on the workouts that I was doing and the weight just fell off. I ended up losing, I got down to 202 pounds from about 295 down to 202 in about four and a half, five months. It was 208 at my retirement press conference. When oh, dude, you should to- see him walking into the retirement. You're like, uh, he, he's got this Bag real smart bones. suit on. No, he's got a he, like skin tight, uh, Steve Weatherford esque skin <laughs> tight spandex suit. And and, I, and the story that that Parsley told me is, I guess when you walked in, nobody recognized you. Yeah, like you were like sitting around and nobody even knew it was him. And then he goes up there on the podium, and like people's like heads exploded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I was 208 pounds. I, I remember getting to 202, and it was like this competitive weight loss where you're just a competitive person and it kind of turned I couldn't fight anybody anymore I wasn't there was nothing to compete against except the scale at this point and so every time I would lose two three five pounds I was winning I got down to 202 and it was after a yoga class it was a hot yoga class and I stood on the scale and it said 202 and I was like sick and three more pounds that scale is going to say 199 and then I'm done and then I turned to the side and looked at myself like my profile in the mirror and I was like oh my god if Armageddon hits I'm gonna get my ass kicked <laughs> and so I immediately went you know, home these and tattoos started, look awful like, that's like <laughs> I look terrible right now and my wife was like thank god you started eating so I ended up getting up to where I am right now about 230 pounds but the diet plan was basically I would have four 600 calorie meals on day one. I'd have two 600 calorie meals on day two and have three of those 600 calorie meals on day three. And on day four, I'd have one 600 calorie meal. And then I'd cycle back and I did that for four and a half months and the weight never stopped falling off. I would put my hard workouts like my weight and like my weights and my high intensity workouts on the four and the three workout or the four and the three meal days. And then I would put carbohydrates around those. And then I would shut off the carbs after that period. And then on the two and on the one day, I would do yoga and I would walk. And every day I would get 10 to 12,000 steps at a minimum. And that was it. And the weight just fell off. I mean, lost a ton of fat, lost a lot of muscle, a lot of muscle. You can't lose fat without losing muscle and you can't gain muscle without putting on fat. So I lost a lot of both and my joints thanked me for it. And then what'd you do to get back up to that? I started eating and started eating normal normal and started banging some more weights. And this is kind of where my natural 
body rest is mm-hmm. 230 pounds. This is what I walked onto the football team at Purdue at. So this is like, I don't have to do very much to be 230. I don't have to strain. And if I really get after it in the weight room, I can get up to like 238, 240 if I want to really kind of bulk up. But other than that, I'm, this is me. This is just kind of my homeostasis state right here. Well, man, good for you for not going the other way. No, it's great. I remember when I retired, I got down to like 260 something, like 263. And I remember like looking at myself and it just looked like awful. I looked like death. (laughs) And I remember being like, man, this is uh, man, I would do. I mean, to be 200 pounds, I can't even fathom that. Like, I mean, dude, I I felt like such a weenie. Well, I, I was thinking about it. I was 165 when I was a freshman in high school. And I think that next year I was like maybe 200 as a sophomore, then maybe like 225 as a junior, then maybe 235, 240 as a senior in high school. And so I was thinking like, man, when was the last time I was 200 pounds? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's probably 15 years old, man. That's like, but uh, okay. how, how tall are you? 6'4". I actually Six, grew oh, when I got done playing because the weight went off and I started getting some space in my spine. I went from like six, three and seven eights. And then we measured after I lost all the weight and I ended up being almost six, five. Huh? What? That's crazy. Just could be, the could weight, be the weight came arches. off. Yeah. Yeah. It could be the arches and, and your spot, like and probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Create some space in that spine. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, I can stand up straighter without a 80 pound weight vest on. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's crazy. So Damn. four, two, three, one. Four, two, three, one. It's not four. bad. Like that's a, it's it's a pretty it's, good deal because you figure what like forward six hundred is twenty four hundred calories. Yeah. And then if you like if you could if you would have done if you could do it over again, Nick probably do like more of like a protein sparing approach. Uh, yeah, uh, modify protein sparing. Yeah, fast. like where it's instead of your six hundred calorie meals, you'd say, all right, I'm going to get two hundred ca- two hundred grams of protein plus throughout the day and well, then like 300 you, calorie meals if you eat enough protein and caloric restriction you don't lose muscle so yes. like um so like it, it's 2. like 2.2 grams per kilo yeah like you know or pound per pound or gram per pound of body weight but it's pretty interesting i, I actually yesterday was looking at some research on this with these uh, modified protein sparing fasts and like you know somebody's like well you, you know nothing exists you'll lose some muscle and i'm like but if you are losing muscle, you're not eating enough protein. Right. And so you can't give an arbitrary amount. Like the way you know is like you have to do You're body. losing muscle. Yeah, you're losing muscle. <laughs> if you're losing muscle, you got to eat more fucking protein. Oh, that's really, yeah. And then, you know, I guess for me when I was doing it too, it's like you don't want to cheat your workout. So you got to throw mm-hmm. some carbohydrates yeah, before yeah. and after the workout to be able to give yourself a chance to actually get after it. And I think that will give you a chance also to maintain the muscle if you're really getting after it during those couple of hard workouts every other day. Well, I mean, you need a carbohydrate for, you know, your Krebs cycle and for ATP and all that. And it's like, you know, people get super, well, I think the the thing we, we figured out just kind of, um, you know, there's research to back it, but anecdotally is um, you always want to be lean enough to be able to eat carbohydrates that, you know, yes. if all of a sudden you're 350 pounds and you're, you know, 35% body fat, like you probably don't need very many carbs. Mm-hmm. And then what we found True. is that as people get smaller and they get leaner and the body fat goes down, you can process carbohydrate because, you know, fat is extremely oxidative and the muscle is extreme, um, helps a lot with uh, insulin sensitivity, which is like, you know, the hallmark for metabolic flexibility, which we've talked about on this podcast numerous times. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, the person that carries the most muscle with the leanest or the least amount of body fat is tends to be the most metabolically flexible, which means that you can switch between carbohydrates and fats easily. Yeah, that's right. And you don't get that case of the sugars. Like I remember, I remember kind of going through it when I was in my, the upper echelon of the weight that I was carrying around. It's like, 
you got to fight through this little brief where you get that sugars where your blood sugar drops low because your body's not responding to it. I remember like, I don't know how many carbs I would be taking in while I was playing, but kind of tapering down off of that and becoming more adaptable to be able to take in whatever and your body just feels fine where you don't mm-hmm. get the sweats, you don't get the shakes. You're just, you shouldn't have that kind of response as you're coming off of food. Yeah. But I mean, but you were, um, man, like, uh, uh, like you, you carried like a little bit of body fat. I mean, I remember uh, mm-hmm. seeing you like you were, I mean, I wouldn't say you were, you know, what, like, uh, probably average 18, 20% body fat. Yes. So, I mean, you're probably carrying 60 pounds of body fat on you, maybe 250, 248 pounds of lean body mass. So to like keep that available, you probably, you know, big caloric restriction, a ton of carbohydrates and probably just not, you know, the, I, I, it would be funny to have done like an insulin sensitivity deal, like tested, like done like a, um, like glucose tolerance test before and after, like, uh, uh, because it probably was that, you know, you didn't process carb and then all of a sudden you're, you know, 202 pounds and all of a sudden (laughs) you're like a fucking machine, Yeah, (laughs) which, which it's crazy, man. Cause people argue about macros and like, we get into all this stuff. And at the end of the day, like whatever, and I had a conversation on Facebook about it is, um, uh, one of the guys who's, uh, been in CrossFit for a long time, Steve Bowser owns like the, the, the play I think like the playhouse or some gym down in uh, Florida. We did a seminar there years ago and uh, he really let himself go. And all of a sudden, I guess he saw a picture and it's like, fuck this. So he's been doing the, uh, the carnivore with one meal a day. And he was like, you know, he's lost like 40 pounds and he's feeling way better. And, you know, people were trying to ride him on this. And um, I was like, well, first of all, he was fat. So he had a ton of excess body weight that he had to work through. Yes. And probably he had to eat through those calories. I mean, like they've had those people where they have to like cut them out of their house and I remember seeing once where this guy's like, this guy doesn't have to really eat food for probably two years. He just needs to drink water. And oh, yeah. um, so he, he had excess body fat and he's done this like one meal a day and it's super caloric, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, super um, uh, hyper or hypocaloric. And, you know, uh, these people are just kind of bashing him. And like my comment was like uh, all the science in the world, sometimes fucking people that have gone to one extreme have to go to the other extreme to like rekindle this thing or figure it away. And at the end of the day, he's making uh, progress. He's losing his weight. He's not fucking dying. And yeah. um, he's able to, you know, feel better about himself. And ultimately, like all the research points to it, it doesn't necessarily matter how you lose the weight. It just matters that you lose the weight. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's part of the deal, right? It's like find a structure that works for you. And everybody's got something else that works. And I, I don't understand why it's had to become this nutrition world has become so dogmatic. It's like, if you want to be dogmatic, go to church, man. Well, like, it's, uh, go uh, figure out another food. cross to die on. It doesn't have to be food as religion. It's just food is a new religion, dude. Food is a new religion because you think about like the emotional response connecting to food. And, uh, I didn't realize the gravity of it until I, you know, got headhunted and worked for CrossFit and got went and taught all those seminars and like getting out and talking to them about like, hey, here's a nutrition uh, approach based on performance and removing the emotion from food. And like and then all of a sudden hearing these stories of how people are so emotionally connected to food and, you know, all of a sudden you start, uh, you know, hey, maybe you should do this and this and like people just absolutely melt down and lose their mind. Like the connection for food and the emotion. Uh, but if you think about it here in America, everything's connected to food. Like, I mean, yeah. did you, did you ever go out with your offensive line buddies and like not have food there? And if you did, they probably riot. I mean, <laughs> think about it. like, uh, that's true. Valentine's day, right? You got chocolate, you got Thanksgiving, like every holiday mm-hmm. is based around some form of food yeah, that's right. and it's just how we Super associate Bowl's based on food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Super yeah, Bowl. What are you serving? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, some know, of my best memories going out with the offensive line and the quarterback is which steakhouse are we going to this Friday night in some, some of the, of the best city? Or, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the best. And, and you get to go chest. You know, that's what's funny. These guys, since we've traveled a bunch over yep. the years, John I'm, brought that uh, <laughs> that to our traveling yeah, all, seminar. All staff. of a sudden, like if we were somewhere, awesome. I was like. I know one hell of a steakhouse and we'd yeah, go to tradition. these places and I'd be like, Oh, you know, we hate it. You know? And like, dude, we crushed some places, man. Kobe Tomahawk. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Like uh, dude. Yeah. Like prime One Twelve in Miami. I mean, uh, like, like still, you still said, this. in Kansas city, it always used to be Garazzo's, the Italian spot kind of in the, yeah, there's like a dingier part of town a little bit. Yeah, it's like the original yeah. Garazzo's. Yeah. Yeah. There was that one. And then like, um, God, what was the other one there? There was that steakhouse that was in the plaza. It was pretty decent. Um, but yeah, I mean, dude, we've been to, I mean, all over San Diego. There's so many good spots in San Diego. Oh, yeah, tons of good food out here. Yeah, but it is. I mean, you're right. It's like, it's all about food. And then I would imagine touring around with the CrossFit seminars and, and teaching people about nutrition for performance. They're like, no, no, we're paleo. We don't do whole grains. Well, we don't do. Out of, out of the like, gate, it was zone. Right. Yeah. Well, early in the day. Oh, it was the, the zone, zone diet. diet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they which was what thirty three percent for everything. No, it was 40, 30, 30, uh, Okay. Carbohydrate, protein, block fat. system. Though. But but what was interesting? That's Doctor Sears. Yeah. yeah. Very serious. Yeah. What was pretty fascinating? Two things. One, it was really the first high, you know, like a high protein diet because at the time, um, I remember uh, like I always ate, you know, just a straight up bodybuilder somewhere between like you know 400, 450 grams of protein a day, and when wow. you eat that much. Uh, you really can't eat very much else. Like I didn't really eat that many carbs or fat, like just trying to eat like, you know, I mean, that was like 18 chicken breasts. So I'm like eating like five, six meals a day at like three to four chicken breasts and steak and the whole thing. And people are like, well, what about other food? I'm like, I just don't have any energy to eat any other food other than this protein. And uh, and the uh, protein was serving as your carbohydrates, right? Because yeah, you're well, probably I mean, spilling over on your your requirements, and then you get the uh, gluconeogenesis. And it, well, the Nico, uh, gluconeogenesis is kind of like the um, the nutritional boogeyman. People think it? it happens. Yeah, uh, it's 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 literally something that people talk about as if it happens. It doesn't always happen, and it uh, it doesn't nearly happen as much as you would think it does. And gotcha. really, the idea comes from um, the length of the small intestine and your ability to absorb protein is kind of dictated on height and also how much you've eaten over the course. So like, let's say you eat like 50 grams of protein and then all of a sudden you go up to 450. But over the course of my life, like I had always eaten one gram of protein per pound of body weight and it was just kind of the deal. I just, I felt better when I ate protein, um, felt better, you know, like I didn't eat a ton of, um, I kind of cycled carbs all through my NFL career. So you're saying if there's a significant change in your regular protein consumption, that could lead to yeah, gluconeogenesis. the onset of gluconeogenesis. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and it's it's pretty yeah. interesting. I mean, they've done studies where, you know, they people think, oh, you know, if you overeat, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen to everybody, and it doesn't happen at the rate at which they think. So I just kind of laid it as a boogeyman. But, oh, that's uh, cool. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, eating it just a, a ton of protein. Um, but what was fascinating was uh, Barry Sears, I remember, like, looking at it because it was kind of a higher-protein diet compared to what most people were offering. Just the problem was he talked about this uh, magic ratio of 40, 30, 30 uh, didn't adhere for any food quality. So you could stay in the zone with beer, potato chips, and beef jerky. And like, you know, as long as you ate in the zone and ate this like magical macronutrient ratio, then you were good to go. And um, I was always a big I remember even the foods that he kind of offered. Yeah. Yeah. No, he- These these packaged foods that- It was- Yeah, the zone bars. It was dog shit quality. 
smash 20 zone bars and go blast some biceps. <laughs> so the, when I was, uh, when I was in college and, um, I think it was early in my, maybe it was in college. Um, I would come home in the summers and, um, I like my brother would like be lifting weights and we'd go and I ended up training with these bodybuilders and it was pretty interesting. Cause, um, the one guy was like, we were training in the off season and he was getting ready for a bodybuilding show. And all of a sudden I roll in and he's like, you know, got all this Tupperware and he's doing this. Cause he was like, just kind of like taking shakes and eating whatever. And all of a sudden he had all this and I'm like, yo man, what was the big change? He's like, I gotta get in shape for a show. And he's like, there's, um, a remarkable difference between people that diet and eat real food in terms of body composition to people that don't, I couldn't eat all that other food. Uh, even if at the same amounts, like he goes, you could balance out the ratios, you know, you know, match the calories. Um, the food quality matters for the appearance of the muscle and the body and the composition. Okay. And sure enough, man, the guy changed his diet and within like 16 weeks, he was absolutely shredded. And I remember being like, Oh, and like, it was crazy. He was in like a caloric restriction. And then as he was getting more shredded, he just started adding in more carbs and more food. And as he ate more, like it was like, I, it was just this most amazing transformation I saw. And I remember that like kind of retooled my thinking on this. And I was like, all right, um, you know, protein is the macronutrient that's most related to body composition, but how you cycle these, you know, carbs and fats is based off of, you know, body fat tolerance, what it looks like. And, you know, he was kind of lower carb. And then all of a sudden as he started leaning out, he started kind of upping the carbs and dropping the fat and the dude was got shredded. And so when we went out and taught all those CrossFit seminars, um, I always liked the paleo diet because it was uh, real food, you know, and yes. the old man that trained me in high school always said, you don't get strong eating out of a, out of a gar out of a, a vending machine. And uh, so like, I liked the paleo for the, uh, for the real food, but it was hard for me to like not recommend somebody of Asian descent to not eat rice. I remember we were talking about paleo and grains and the whole deal. And this guy's like, I'm Asian. Can I eat white rice? And I was like, 100%. You, you yeah. people, yeah, I mean, like, so, like, there there were some things I ran into with that, and then, uh, you know, we never found anybody that really had allergic reactions to eating white rice other than, like, w some weird dude that had some autoimmune disease, but, um, it, you know, it, it just, it was something, I think, that was really good in theory, and then when the zealots and the, the dogma mm. and the absolute fucking nut jobs got into the paleo thing, yeah. they absolutely fucking strangled it with all of this, like... Well, foods got labeled as, like, villains, you know? Like, oh, yeah. there's the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, the bad White foods. potatoes are bad. And it's like, ah. ah, They didn't steal my wallet. Yeah. You know, and I, <laughs> I've, I even had a joke about that, like, no food is bad. Like, like there's no such thing. They don't have inherent evil in them. Mm -hmm. Now your ability to like consume them and yeah, tolerate. You, yeah. Right. yeah. Your ability to process mm -hmm. them may change. Yeah. But Nick, and, and when we would work with the CrossFit group and I say this, not as a necessarily a demeaning, cause I was this, I was this person, you know, like you're just the, the whole buy into that movement early in like 2005 to even probably 2015 was like, it was just so pole. Everything had to be polarizing. Everything yeah. had to be the only way uh, or the only type of food. And it's just it's it was just the rhetoric that was pushed out from the block well, or uh, but, the but boxes. It coincided with uh, with the training and this us yeah. versus them mentality. And totally. This. And then I'll, I'll tell you, I actually and um, GG like that's well, just, that I'm, was his old deal. Well, yeah, deal he's too. you know, I mean, Glassman's made a lot of money on basically pointing the finger and saying, you know, those guys, those are the ones to blame. Let's get them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we're we're on the side of the righteous and they're on the side of the wrong and the evil. And mm -hmm. he's really good at about spinning up large groups of people. And then what he does is he uses 
is, and I actually uh, downloaded, I sent you guys the deal. There was a study from 2011 where they went through the seven signs of deception associated <laughs> yeah, with a cult. Good. Yeah. And um, I, I, I'm going to read them right now so then you guys can say, all right, give me, and we'll play a little game. Does this sound like a cult? All right, number one, beware, uh, beware any kind of pressure, especially to uh, if the intent is to make you do something that is out of the ordinary, unexpected. So beware of any kind of pressure, especially with the intent to make you do something weird or out of the ordinary. Number two, be wary of any leader who can sway the wills of others without the need of explanation or justification. This can come in the form of a god with status or with proclaiming powers or insight. Number three, the group is closed or there are are perceived circles within the group that are closed. Entrance into the closed circles is only granted through special authority, like the block one staff. Exactly. Um, right. Like as we get through this, Nick, our block one coaches who are certified network no, coaches I'm, are probably like, this sounds a lot like what we're in. No, this, this is very similar. No, no, this is very, this is very similar in CrossFit with their level oh, one no, staff. Totally, right? totally is. Uh, the group uses deceptive means, language, lingo, or vagueness when trying to recruit new members mm-hmm. like the wad. wad. Let's wad. Get your wad on. What's your yeah. grand? What's your phrase time? Phrase, what's your phrase? Grand. What's your Michael time? Like mm-hmm. people don't even know. Him. What's that one? Michael's Who 800 knows? meters backwards. <laughs> no, 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 that's no, no. It was uh, 400 meter runs, GHD, 50 GHD setups. Oh, Rabdo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. called Rabdo. My time's uh, a month. Uh, the group promises some sort of family or unity being in the group grants benefits, either real or perceived. Mm-hmm. If you violate the rules of the group, you will be ostracized or shamed. The black box. It is uh, expected for members to also look down on those who violate the rules. And number seven you are expected to attend group venues, often with little or no details of the explained activities. The location is often in remote areas or, or private premises. There, where outsiders are not permitted, is often kept secret until just before the gathering. Actually, this sounds a lot like the NFL, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't it? The military. Total. The right? military. Like, like for I'm, sure. I, I'm like reading this, and I'm like, man, this reminds me a lot of all the work we've done with the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely CrossFit and uh, every NFL team. So. You know? It's a great recipe, actually. You know, I'm, we should really... Re- we shouldn't have. Let's well, review what we Let's cut this out of the podcast so that we can you know, effectively start implementing yeah, let's this. Say, let's this, implore this. Guys, this works. What are we talking about? <laughs> you idiots. God, stop giving away the secrets. Man, my oh, favorite, like, I, I, anytime cult stuff comes up and stuff like that, I just cannot help but ruminate on how awesome Scientology is. So, Nick, I hope you're not a Scientologist. I'm not. No. Okay, good. Uh, but, man. He's how, a nihilist. What a great... <laughs> care about Hubbard, man. Pulled off, like, the biggest hoax Have you ever, ever. read his sci-fi books? I have not. Battlefield and, you know, Earth? I probably should. Amazing sci-fi, which but, means, which totally makes sense, because then he wrote his own religion. And he's classified by the IRS. Scientology is a legit religion and totally tax-exempt. Like, he, he crushed it. What? How did he pull that off? It's, it shocks me every time. He went through the list. Yeah, yeah, man. He, he got he this through, list. He, he went like, through the eight items. <laughs> I think he Just wrote that the simple. list. <laughs> yeah, man. It's crazy. And it's a shame people whose lives get absolutely Well, don't they make you come that. in there and they, like, make you confess? And then when you try to leave, they, like, threaten you with it. And you're like, like oh, God. Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, we got the file uh, We're going to need all your money or yeah. we're going to use this. I'm like, it's called, oh, uh, let's call it confidence scam. You bring people in a confidence kit, you tell them something, and then you manipulate them and blackmail them for the information. It's beautiful. And then you call it religion, aka mm-hmm. Scientology. Man, oh god, not good. Let's start. The, let's start a religion. <laughs> I'm in, but we'll make it a good cult. Oh. 
Okay. That's when they asked me if CrossFit was a <laughs> yeah. cult. I'm like, yeah, but it's kind of a fitness cult. You know, if I had known what a, ma- what a, a massive shitbag Glassman was, I probably would have pulled the ripcord. Kelly, earlier. don't cut that out. <laughs> Sorry. Well, actually, I'm pretty sure Kelly's not even listening to these anymore because uh, <laughs> like all of a sudden people will be hitting me on stuff. I'm like, oh, God, Kelly didn't cut that out? Oh, God. Yeah, Nick, Kelly is our, uh, was a coach of ours. She now is in Seattle, works for Seattle PD and is our podcast editor. So like, oh, nice. and, and kind of our producer yeah. in a lot of ways. And, and so and, we um, push it off to her. And, and I'm pretty sure she listens to the first five minutes and she's like, oh, I'm sure they didn't say anything too stupid. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was good. <laughs> yeah. uh, she's like, oh, the intro was fine. They only talked about the weather. I'm sure there's nothing important on that podcast. So Nick, I was kind of poking around social account and stuff like that. And obviously this, uh, this journey after the NFL into your weight loss has sparked a kind of an opportunity to promote fitness in, in your journey and kind of your beliefs. What are you into now with this thing? Where are you taking so, it? So yeah, I mean, in, in San Diego, we've got three going on five gyms. It's kind of high intensity bodybuilding is what we call it. It's I like we, it. It's, it's the, if CrossFit and Orange Theory were to have a baby, it would be us. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little step up from Orange Theory. So when people are over it or when they've gone through, you know, years of the program and don't have the body that they want, then they come to us and they incorporate some heavy weights into their program. And it's all dumbbells, cables, um, bands trx's and then we got the air runners and we have the assault air bikes and so it's a high intensity bodybuilding so we've got three of those we've got two more opening up here what's the the name of it it's called renegade nice yes yeah you can check that out on instagram it's just at renegade we had to buy it for that name from like some 12 year old kid who was just out there holding names so kind of good for that kid nice little business (laughs) was his name Chris McQuilkin? <laughs> no, I'm holding, <laughs> you're holding other things. You're squatting on a lot of power. I just, just, so we have a program, uh, I guess you call it bodybuilding program in our catalog of s- subscription programs called Jack Street. Mm-hmm. And we, we have the Jack Street Instagram handle. 100%, yeah. And it has, they're following one person that's power athlete. But does anyone know the password to that? Uh, it can. <laughs> it's one of two. I only use two passwords. Whoa, hang on. Don't Not tell sick. everybody that. Yeah, that's, you just compromised operational <laughs> yeah. security, bro. Callie, cut that out. Well, I guess if anyone has seen hackers. <laughs> God love sex. Sex Truth. are the three only passwords that anyone uses these days. <laughs> uh, oh, shit. But that's, that I, is, oh. you want to go? Because I was just going to say that's a great lane to, to merge into because there's, as much as we, we give the CrossFit cronies at the top a hard time, I, the, the, the gyms yeah, and the, audience the system and, and the people who are doing it yeah, are some of the best people we've ever met on the road, you know? So it's, it's nothing yeah. against that little. And I think what, the, I th- what, what CrossFit did really was bring that kind of training to the common person. So yeah, totally. Well, it introduced overall uh, as a really uh, net positive. Well, it, it introduced an entire generation to barbells. You know, yeah. I mean, I uh, like it just blew my mind where uh, I like we'd still to this day we meet people. I'm like, wow, you're just fighting this stuff. Mm-hmm. Holy hell. Like, congratulations. Yeah. Like, welcome to the party. You know, yeah, you made it. it. Yeah. yeah. I was like, we're, we've been keeping this motherfucker warm for a while. Like, let's I go. To, I say that to people that come into the class all the time. I'm like, where have you been? How'd you find us? And where have you been? Yeah, I'd like to. Is, is there more of you out there? We got to drag them in. We got to save people. Yeah, that's kind of the thought process, right? And then so there's that. And then I do a podcast myself called Finding Center. And I talk to a lot of doctors, a lot of neuroscientists, uh, people basically to help others out on their health journey. And 
I tell you what, that's been just a ton of fun. So we're really, really enjoying that. Doc Parsley being one of them. I know you guys are good buddies with Doc Parsley. He was my first guest of the first season, and he's the he was my first guest of the second season. So we talked about sleep on the first one, and then I found out he was super passionate about hormone replacement therapy because that's kind of the area that is of most interest to him, and he was super good on that. And, you know, it just kind of follows these – avenues and Mm -hmm. you know one of the one of the things that i've done recently which i there was an article peter king's football morning in america that i did was a brain treatment i went to it was magnetic e-resonance therapy so basically they've got these like e-stem devices You, you do an eeg they measure your brain waves and get out these scans and you do these every two weeks well five days a week for six weeks you for about 30 minutes a day, you sit under a magnet that gives pulses down into your brain and does its best to assemble and then align the neurons. So they fire in a more coherent manner from front to back and from side to side. And I did that. We've done some podcasts about that. And do you think it helped? I do think it helps. I mean, I could see the actual brainwave structure change, It's interesting. And I I think this is an area that I'd really like to get into is, you know, when thinking about combat and contact sports and my boys, I got an eight year old and a six year old. It's like, I'd really want them. And I would urge all parents out there putting their kids into football or an MMA or whatever they're going to get into is have them do an EEG. I mean, I think an EKG has become standard or an ultrasound of the heart to see if there's any enlargement there. It's like, let's get an early baseline on these kids. Cause what, my brain found or what we found through the EEG is that my brain operates at a really high, like kind of my set point is theta waves, which is kind of more of a meditative state. And I'm not a monk and I have practiced meditation, but I don't live in that state by any means. Yeah. But you're kind of a, a more um, sympathetic, like um, you're kind of like me where I think you are like sit in a sympathetic state because yeah. what I found is that people that are constantly in that parasympathetic, uh, they burn out really fast. Yes. Like I was the dude that was always like, you know, cool and calm and collected, you know, it's always calmest right before the storm type of deal when I played. Yeah. And I found like trying to search for that, like uh, that peace or more importantly, that like that calmness. Um, because I'd see people that were, you know, screaming and yelling, beating their chest. And I always thought they were trying to talk themselves into something. And yes. also that like level of like, uh, emotional, just like high emotion, man. Like I couldn't sustain that. Yes. And, uh, yeah, we, it's we, just we just everything's got to be yeah. even keel. Well, yeah. So like no, uh, no big highs, no big lows allows me to do it. But we had, uh, uh, the guys from RPR, which is, uh, restorative postural reset, um, come out and do a seminar and they talked a ton about like sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And the, even JL, who was the guy that taught it was like, you know, you're extremely, you know, sympathetic. He's like, you just don't seem like you get riled up a lot. And I'm like a lifetime of trying not to yeah, do you that. Gotta switch them. Oh, I'm sorry. Parasympathetic. opposed to sympathy. My bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of training. And, that, and so that's the kind of the question for me after all these years, I finally had an EEG and sure I sit in the theta waves and that really is the big question about it. And that's why I say it's like, I would like to have known what I look like before I started this football journey and then kind of coming out because maybe I do just naturally, like you say, that's kind of me. And that also may have allowed a lot of success, right? It's like 75, 90,000 people going crazy and I'm just calm as could be out there. Well, and maybe, maybe that allowed more success. For me, uh, everything was super quiet. 
Like that's the weirdest yeah. thing where people are like, oh, you're going to miss the roar of the crowd. I'm like, never once heard it. Like, like, like <laughs> there was a crowd was, there. Yeah. I mean, to the point where like really? everything just sounded really silent and like really still. And um, mm-hmm. I just remember being there and like being just kind of in the moment and then not even really noticing crowd and not, no, not really noticing the noise. And um, yeah. uh, like when people and, and, you know, I'm sure people are like, oh, do you miss the roar of the crowd to run out there? And I'm like, I never saw him. Like it, it like when I left, I was just kind of sad that I didn't get paid money to beat people's asses anymore, but I, <laughs> I really didn't care. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really care for the individuals I was around and I really didn't care for the, you know, for the hoopla and the drama and all the other stuff, man. I just want somebody to get, pay me to go out there and want to want a dude for three hours every Sunday and get paid money to beat his ass. Yeah. I, I guess the thing that I miss the most is my meetings, figuring out how to pick up all the blitzes. <laughs> that that's all I really like to do with football anyway was just figure out how to pick up blitzes and I really like the kind of the geometry of everything and figuring out like a little cue that would allow us to know that this blitz was a hundred percent going to come and it would take hours to get there and it's like I've got the cue and I would go and we check all of the the same blitz and it's like hundred percent of the time that's where it's at and so it's like these real long meetings with rivers and me and other guys would kind of gather around and just hear us talking about how we're planning on picking up these blitzes. And then to see that planning and that preparation come to fruition and you got it. And you're like, you just turn around, you get the ball on the ground. You're like, we got it come and fill. And he's like, <laughs> I got, I got you. I was like, let's go rock it here. And he's like, yep, got it. Call the play. Boom, pick it up. Perfect. And then we just fist pump. Cause we just roasted him for a first down or a touchdown or whatever it was like, it was all worth it. Like that's all that I miss about the game was preparing for blitz pickup, sub pass protection, and meeting time. I loved. I love sitting in meetings. Man, I miss one on ones. Said nobody ever. I fucking lived for one on one pass pro. <laughs> that's not I, true. Uh, I did. It, it, it was, did you? It, oh yeah. Like I. I never lost. Uh, I, I never lost. Like wow. never lost. Because uh, I like it's cheating the deal. Like I know the guy's pass rushing. I know yes. we, we don't have to run. And I used to short set dudes and I would jump the counts and I would like fucking do uh, everything. Like hold the shit out of people, punch them in the face. Like I never Whatever. lost, I, I never lost a one-on-one. If like, oh, that's awesome. And uh, you, you know, guys would always get nervous and I was like, so the dude, guys would get so anxious. Oh, about it. I would sprint over and stand in line and uh, you know, I played left guard and then, you know, when I was right tackle, they would always, you know, Hey, you want to start? I'd be like, I'll take first. And they'd Let's always go. go the, right yeah. I, I loved one-on-one pass pro. Like that and was you know the what shit it, I live for. You know what's crazy? Kind of group dynamics. So if you love doing it, you start it off, you get a win. Everybody else on the line gets a win. Yeah. If the person that starts us started it yeah. off loses twice in a row, everybody else loses twice in a row. Yeah. It's like yeah. it, it really does come down to those first couple uh, of reps. I, and then I, the defense is like, oh shit, they're ready to play today. And they yeah. just assume everybody along the front is ready to play. You know, my other one was um, I always loved when, um, you know, we were on the field and uh, the quarter change. Because I, what I would do is I would just take off and sprint to the other oh, end. I and did I would too. run past the people. And, like, the, I could always hear the defensive lineman groan. And even no matter how tired I was, I would dead run as fast as I can down there and get down there and be like, come on, let's go. And like call them out and kind of like just stand there with my hands on my hips and be like, let's do this. Come on, let's go. And I, and I used to see the look on their face yeah. and like that was the shit I lived for. Just seeing then, the look of fucking distress on somebody's face. Oh, just letting them know you're not tired. Yeah. Be like, I could do it's this just, all day. I'm it's one of those little things. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those little things that just 
broke their will eventually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn it. He's never going to get tired. He's never going to let down. He's going to keep pushing me in the back at the end of the plane. Like, what an ass. He jogs back to the huddle. Yeah. And then the other one was, um, I don't know if you had this, but man, like everywhere, like you remember, like right during kickoff, you'd have some like a little weird manager come over and hand you a smelling salt. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like universal. I don't know. I'd just be standing there next. Somebody would like hand me a smelling salt and I'd be like, yes. Like snap that thing and try to stick it in my nose. And then like your <laughs> eyes are going, your head's exploding. And I'm like, man, I wish I just in life, like just people would randomly come over and hand me a smelling salt. And I'm like, we going to do this? And you're like, What's oh, it? I don't even know who this little fucking manager is, but he just gave me a smelling salt and I'm going to light this thing up. Yo, where'd you come from? It's like yeah. a little garden gnome that just yeah, pops just, up out just, of the Yeah, just, hand, just oh. hands you a smelling salt. And every team I played at, like right before kickoff, you're kind of bouncing, waiting, and some little dude to come over and like hand you smelling salt. I'm like, God damn you. Just give me this. Yeah. Just snap these things uh, up and get rocked. I think off. we have a new tradition for the podcast. Oh. <laughs> there it is. Dude, uh, like I... Like I can still feel my eyes water and I can smell it. Like the, it's funny like when, <laughs> when I see people lift weights and they go over and they'll huff some stuff and they go over and do something. I always think I'm like fucking pretenders. Well, in Texas, we had the, the water bottle. So it's like all the old smelling salts you put in there. Guys would just shake it up and, oh, and sniff the bottle. No, no like the, the snaps, uh, they're like, you know, they, yeah. like they crack them, but you like snap it and then you go and then your eyes start to water and your head gets all lit up and you're like, I'm going to fucking kill somebody. And like, just like that, like even keel being like some, I'm going out there and somebody's going to die. And you know what? Then we're going to go eat a steak after. (laughs) Somebody's going to pay for this. So we used to, we used to have a dude in college who would just keep a bottle of ammonia in the top of his locker. And before we went out to the field, he would just huff the ammonia. Nice. And it's just, I mean, it's it's like, you would just take a huge whiff and he'd pass uh, this bottle around. Like, this was a good idea. It's like, has anybody checked the science on, <laughs> on oh, this? Is, I, this can't be good for you. It's like, I love we might it. as well be huffing gasoline. Man, it's uh, it's a little things like that. Like, um, you know, the fact that some dude's there to hand you smelling salts or, you know, like uh, just, you know, running out 100 miles an hour. Like, I mean, just you know, <laughs> like going over to Pass Pro and like, you know, you go do your warm up and they blow it up and you know you're going to go to one on ones. And just like kind of running over there and being like, oh, fuck, man. We The fact that I get paid to whip people's asses like this is the best like, fuck, like that was the greatest moment. And then being like, yeah, like I'm like, man, we're, you know, and then you don't get to do it anymore. And all of a sudden you're like, it's the little things. Like I could care less about like all the other bullshit, you know? And it's like this, it was just those small little things that I seemed to miss. Isn't that funny? That's exactly. I, I oh, miss, dude, life's in the details. I miss, I miss steak dinners on Friday nights or wherever we were at and kind of the restaurants that we had. I miss I was the one who would always call and make the reservation at the restaurant when we'd land somewhere. Like, Very nice. Hey, it's Nick Hardwick with the Chargers. I want a reservation for nine coming up in like 45 minutes. Can you fit us in? Of course. And Please, most, yeah, most, most people like, yeah, we'd love to have you. But we used to go to Elway's in Denver. We went on the string where we'd beat them consistently and then – Finally, I called one year and I'm like, hey, this is Nick Carter. We're going to charge you. And they were like, yeah, we can get you in at 930. Like, oh, oh. We have meetings. Sorry, that's not going to work for us. They were like, yeah, we, they're we like, don't no. have we don't have room for you. Might try another steakhouse. Like, Fucking oh, I, see, I, see, I see what you did here, John. Fucking assholes. He's like, don't let don't don't bring those guys in anymore. Yeah. Uh-uh. I got one quick question for you, Nick. Do you remember your combine bench press reps? He didn't go to the oh. combine. I did, did go, go to the combine. Oh, you did go to the combine? I did, yeah. I was, I was super weak at the combine because I was coming off of a big stinger. I was 27 reps. John, do you remember your combine bench press reps? Yeah, they, uh, I got 30, but they counted 26. 
Oh. Counted 24 according to this. Oh, it was a 24? Website. Were, was it John Lott? Do you remember? Uh, I just remember they didn't count my first once. No rep, no rep, no rep. But this Talk year there was a deck. punter that set the punter record for 25. So. So only one pro athlete has been outbenched by a punter in this conversation. Is what yes. saying? That's what I'm getting at. Who's benching more now, John? That's the question. No, I'm not been. I'm you were the punter. <laughs> uh, I wasn't a big rep guy. I was a big one rep guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for comparison, Derrick Henry, the beast of a running back on the Titans, he only hit 22, but he was Alabama, like mm-hmm. power cleaning 400 pounds. You know what's hilarious, though, about the bench press? It's like directly, it, it's inversely proportional right. to what you're actually looking for out of an athlete. Yeah. Like you, you want somebody who's got really long arms and the bench press <laughs> penalizes the athlete with long arms. Well, so it's like, oh, that, that experience. That's right. It's like, well, that, that tackle only got 19 reps. It's like, no shit. He's, He's got a simple wingspan. They should have yeah, you put, exactly. push like it. How, think how you, long he has to move that weight. Push. You, you should push the 225 on like a, a VBT device for velocity every 10 seconds. Well, I always like the fact that Heath oh, Evans. Okay. Uh, in a suit, got like 40 reps when his best was like 15, and he's like, <laughs> right? Like, he's on the NFL network, just fucking like training with Mike O'Hearn, fucking dieseled up. And they're like, hey, he's like in a suit with a tie and like knocks, like with dress shoes, knocks out 40 reps. And everybody's like, uh, and then they fired him shortly thereafter, and they were like, uh, this doesn't look good that this dude, and he's like, I'm a, I'm a religious guy. I've just been doing it on God power. And I'm like, uh, I was like, dude, I played with you. You did like, you look a hundred times better today than you did when, when I played with you. I'm like, you look like Superman now. And like, it's all that fish. Yeah. It's all, all that tilapia. Tilapia. A lot of time. He got on the rock diet. Yeah. Yeah. Tilapia. Yeah. Cause the rock looks fucking great. Mm-hmm. Five tilapia patties a day, <laughs> 20 times a day. I hate tilapia. It's mm-hmm. the nastiest fish on the planet. I've had worse. I feel like chicken, fish of the fish of the <laughs> land, <laughs> the fish of the Midwest, the fish of the farm, so to speak. Um, well, we are we're out of time, John. Yeah, dude. We yeah. got to. Yeah, we got to. Sorry, we got to cut this short. I mean, all good guys. It's been two hours. I don't yeah. know if we're really cutting it short, but uh, I feel like we could do this. Yeah. Th- thanks so much for joining yeah, us on the, the show, Nick and Power Athlete Nation. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Thank you. Now it's time to empower your performance. Head to Instagram to learn more about Renegade and Nick Hardwick by searching both those handles. And let me just say, I definitely edit this podcast. I listen to it many times before it hits your ear. And if you think it sounds like shit, imagine what it sounded like before I worked my mediocre magic. Until next time, bye!